welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Also, welcome to the second episode of Titanic Month here on the channel. Today, we will be discussing the building of RMS Titanic and all of the design choices that made her the beautiful ship she was. Before we dive in, I must inform you. This story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the loss of a vessel and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note before I begin that I am not a ship designer, mariner, or expert in the field of maritime history, but I have done my research and will present the information as I understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, I will be including the basics of nautical terminology in the description for anyone who needs it. Today, there will be some terms in the French and German languages in which I am not fluent, but I will do my best to give accurate pronunciations. One more very important note before we begin, all three ships of the Olympic class of the White Star Line are beloved by many, including myself. There is an enormous amount of information on RMS Titanic, some of it conflicting. I will be pulling from many sources and going off of the most common findings among researchers. Please note that as soon as I click post on this video, the information will be outdated. With all of the Olympic class ships, there is new information coming out all the time. There are many details I might leave out for brevity's sake, and no, I don't do that to hide information or confuse. If corrections are to be made in the comments section or additional information added, please feel free to do so respectfully. There's no need to get nasty with one another over 110-year-old vessels that none of us were personally there to witness or record information about. We want to continue to keep the comments section a safe, fun place to talk about our love of ships. We've gotten to the meat and potatoes of this month, the story of RMS Titanic. She is, of course, my favorite vessel to ever float the seas, and I think a lot of us could say that. This episode is for those of you who love design, engineering, and architecture. To start her story, we are going to begin with some background information to set the scene. As for her name, Titanic comes from the Titans of Greek mythology, which makes sense. The Titans were the pre-Olympian gods in Greek mythology, and of course, they were huge and massively impressive. Titanic and her two sisters would be built in Belfast, Ireland by Harland and Wolfe. Titanic was the middle sibling, and for once in the history of middle siblings, she is more well-known instead of one of the other two. She was the second of the Olympic class, with the first being the namesake of the class, RMS Olympic, which we covered last Sunday. The last sister, HMHS Britannic, we will cover the final Sunday of this month, and she'd be finished a few years after her two older sisters. This is debated by researchers and is not confirmed, so take it with a grain of salt. But apparently, HMHS Britannic was going to originally be called RMS Gigantic, and she was to be over 1,000 feet long. But again, this can't be verified. We'll get more into that rumor in her episode. As for the White Star Line, they were determined to have the largest, most luxurious ships on the water to compete with not only Cunard Line, but the Holland America Line and Norddeutsche Lloyd Line as well. Cunard was known for having incredibly fast, efficient ships, and so White Star Line decided they could make the biggest splash in size and luxury, and boy did they. At the time, Olympic and Titanic, and soon to be Britannic, were the largest ships of the White Star Line's fleet of 29 steamships and tender boats, and upon their launching, Olympic and Titanic would each get to be the largest ship in the world. But we all might have asked ourselves once or twice, 
Where did the idea for Olympic, Titanic, and Britannic come from? The idea took root in mid-1907 between the White Star Line's chairman, J. Bruce Ismay, and the American financier, J.P. Morgan. If you were unaware, J.P. Morgan's International Mercantile Marine Company, or IMM for short, was the parent corporation that controlled White Star Line, among many other shipping companies, and it damn near monopolized the transatlantic shipping trade for some time until IMM disappeared in 1943 after merging with the United States Line. So, to keep Ismay's goal of being the final say in comfort and luxury, the company set out to upgrade their fleet, primarily in response to the gorgeously fast, quote, Greyhounds of the Sea, RMS Lusitania and RMS Mauritania of the Cunard Line, and to also strengthen their hold on the Southampton to Cherbourg to New York City route that had started in 1907. At the time, four ships were needed to run this route. However, it was planned that RMS Olympic, RMS Titanic, and RMS Britannic would be fast enough to run a weekly service to and from without needing a fourth sister, but would still be an enormously bougie experience. So, the ships that the Olympic class would replace would be RMS Majestic and RMS Teutonic of the Teutonic class, as well as RMS Adriatic of the Big Four. RMS Oceanic would remain on the route until Britannic could be completed, since the first two sisters would be completed much sooner and Oceanic was a classy ship in its own right. As we know, Titanic was lost on her maiden voyage, and so RMS Majestic would be put back into place. As for her construction, it would be done with Harland and Wolfe, who'd had contracts with White Star Line as far back as 1867. They were given a lot of leeway in how to design the Three Sisters, with the company trusting in Harland and Wolfe's expertise. Usually, White Star Line would bring forward an idea to sketch out the general concept of the ship, and Harland and Wolfe would run with this and form the design. White Star Line wasn't concerned with the cost for the three Olympic-class liners, granting Harlan and Wolf permission to spend what they needed to make the three ocean liners perfect, with the addition of a 5% profit margin. For RMS Olympic and RMS Titanic, the two companies agreed to three million pounds to build both, plus a 5% fee and, quote, extras to contract. In 2023, it would cost approximately £274,902,667 to build Olympic and Titanic, so it was an enormous investment. And because of this enormous investment and how important it was, Harlan and Wolf assigned their leading designers to the projects. The design was overseen by Lord William James Peary, who was a director for both Harlan and Wolf and the White Star Line. Thomas Andrews, the famous naval architect who went down with Titanic, as well as the managing director of Harland & Wolff's design department. Andrews' deputy, who was responsible for calculating the ship's design, trim, and stability, Mr. Edward Wilding. And finally, Alexander Carlyle, who was Harland & Wolff's chief draftsman and general manager. Carlyle was in charge of equipment, general arrangements, and decorations, and this included the ever-important task of efficient lifeboat davit design. For anyone who doesn't know, we will briefly go over what a davit is and what it is used for. A davit is any of various crane-like devices used on a ship for supporting, lowering, and raising equipment such as boats and anchors. They can be operated by electric winches or manually, and their design has changed tenfold since the days of Titanic. Nowadays, you'll typically see electric winches to lower and raise lifeboats. However, almost all davits are difficult or dangerous to operate when the ship is listing past 10 to 15 degrees, though this isn't always the case. 
We have seen this in many, many stories, two prime examples being SS Andrea Doria and Costa Concordia, both of which we have covered previously. After about a year's worth of work, the proud designers presented their work to J. Bruce Ismay and other executives of the White Star Line, and Ismay approved of the design. Two days after this, he'd signed three, quote, letters of agreement, essentially contracts, to authorize the construction to begin. At this time, the hull which would become RMS Olympic was simply known as Number 400, since it was Harlan and Wolf's 400th hull they'd laid. Titanic would be based upon a similar but revised design to Olympics, and at this point, she was called Number 401. Construction finally began on Titanic on March 31, 1909, with her keel being laid down three months after Olympics. From keel to launch, it would take 26 months total to build Titanic. At the peak of construction, Harland and Wolf had approximately 14,000 men working on Olympic and Titanic, with the ships almost being built in tandem with one another. It took a little over a year to fully frame Titanic, and after the framing was done, large steel plates were riveted into frame. It took more than 3 million rivets to hold the steel into place, each one pounded in by hand. This is something important to keep in mind. At the time of her building, these rivets were made of wrought iron. However, after examinations done by metallurgist Tom Folk, it was found that some of the samples of these rivets contained three times today's allowable amount of slag. Slag is a glassy residue left behind after smelting iron ore, and slag made the rivets less ductile and more brittle than they should have been, and the mushroom-shaped heads of these rivets would have popped off when the iceberg scraped the side of the ship. Keep that in mind for when we go over her sinking next week. Her shell plating would be completed as of October 1910. In the hull, Titanic had 24 double-ended and 5 single-ended boilers, containing 159 furnaces. All of these boilers and furnaces powered two massive reciprocating four-cylinder triple-expansion steam engines for the wing propellers and a low-pressure Parsons turbine for the center propeller, generating roughly 46,000 horsepower. Each boiler was enormous, standing over two stories tall. Her three propellers were made of bronze, and something important to note is that her propellers are different from Olympic and Britannic. Titanic's propellers were all triple-bladed, whereas Olympic had two triple blades and one quadruple blade in the center. There's a popular picture that claims to show Titanic's propellers with men in front of it, but don't be fooled, those are actually Olympic's propellers. Interestingly enough, many of the pictures of the inside of Titanic that we have are actually of Olympic, and this includes every single photo of the iconic Grand Staircase. Why, you might ask? Because they didn't think Titanic would sink, and so they thought it would be easier and more convenient to only take pictures of the almost identical sister for the time being. As we know from last year's episode on SS Laurentic, the amazing design of the Olympic class's engines were first tested on SS Laurentic and proved to be fantastic. There was a great combination of speed and performance without sacrificing efficiency. Reciprocating steam engines weren't powerful enough to move enormous ocean liners like the Olympic class on their own, but that's where the turbine came in. Turbines alone were powerful but caused uncomfortable vibrations, as seen on RMS Lusitania and RMS Mauritania. By combining the two technologies, you could get an efficient and comfortable ride. Not only this, but fuel usage was reduced and motive power was increased, all while using the same amount of steam. It truly was ingenious. 
Each of the two reciprocating engines were 63 feet long and weighed around 720 tons, with their bed plates adding another 195 tons onto that. Each of the boilers were 15 feet and 9 inches in diameter and 20 feet long, and they each weighed 91.5 tons, being capable of holding 48.5 tons of water to turn into steam. They were attached to long shafts which drove the propellers. There were three, one for each engine, with the outer propeller's drive shafts being the largest. Each of these drive shafts carried three blades of manganese bronze alloy with a total diameter of 23.5 feet around. The middle propeller, of course, was slightly smaller, and so it was only 17 feet in diameter. Interestingly, it was not capable of being reversed like the other two shafts, and it could only be stopped. Of course, to turn all of that water into steam for the engines, she needed coal. Total in her bunkers, Titanic could carry 6,611 tons of coal, plus an added 1,092 tons in hold three if needed. The furnaces needed over 600 tons of coal a day to power the ship, and this had to be done all by hand. To keep the ship running, a crew of 176 firemen working around the clock would be needed supplying the boilers with the much-needed coal. After the coal was burned, ash would be left behind, and so it had to be disposed of. And so, 100 tons of ash would be disposed into the ocean per day. The work wasn't easy, as we learned from studying SS Eastland. It was a long, hard day with back-breaking, dangerous work, and the workers were constantly covered in coal dust and subjected to extreme temperatures. At the very least, the firemen were paid pretty generously, all things considered. However, sadly, the suicide rate among these men was astounding. Not all steam is good steam. Sometimes there's too much, or it's a byproduct of another process on board the ship. And so this exhaust steam needs to be vented somewhere. It was actually used to power the turbine by passing it into a service condenser. And this increased the efficiency of the turbine. It also made it possible to condense the steam back into water and reuse it. All of this steam could power Titanic to a maximum of 23 knots, with an average cruising speed of 21 knots. They called Titanic a floating city at the time, and they really weren't kidding. The electrical plant on board the ocean liner was capable of producing more power than most power stations that serviced cities at the time. Right behind the turbine engine, there were four 400-kilowatt steam-driven electric generators. These were used to provide electricity to the entire ship for all functions, including hotel functions. As well as these generators, there were two auxiliary generators for emergency use only that were only 30 kilowatts, and they were located in the stern of the ship in order for them to remain operational up until the final moments of the ship's sinking. This sadly would prove useful later on as Titanic sank. RMS Titanic also didn't have a searchlight since she was following the ordinance of the Merchant Navy, which banned the usage of searchlights altogether. For all of the Olympic-class ocean liners, they were divided into 16 primary watertight compartments, separated by 15 bulkheads that extended up to D-deck. There were 11 watertight doors that closed vertically and sealed off compartments in case of flooding or an emergency. The ship's decks were made of a mixture of pine and teak, with the interior ceilings being covered in painted granulated cork to fight condensation and because cork is a very light material. Of the four orange and black painted funnels, only three were functional, with the fourth added purely for aesthetics and kitchen ventilation. There were two masts that were each 155 feet tall, and they were used as supporting derricks for working cargo with one hoisting the crow's nest. 
As for steering and maneuverability, Titanic's enormous rudder was 78 feet and 8 inches high and 15 feet and 3 inches long, weighing well over 100 tons. Due to its enormous size and weight, the rudder actually needed its own steering engines, and so two steam-powered steering engines were added, although only one would be used at a time, with the other kept as a reserve engine. They'd be connected to the short tiller, which is a lever used to steer a vehicle and used primarily in watercraft, through a series of stiff springs. The springs were used to absorb any shock that heavy seas or quick changes in direction could inflict on the steering engines, kind of like shocks on a car. If things got really bad and the crew were in dire straits, the tiller could be moved by ropes that were connected to two steam capstans. A capstan is a vertical axed rotating machine developed for use on ships to multiply the pulling force of seamen when hauling ropes, hawsers, and cables, and it's pretty similar in principle to a windlass. These capstans were also used for raising and lowering the ship's anchors. There were five anchors total, two kedging anchors, one in the center line and one on each side, both port and starboard. Now, of course, when you have people aboard your ship, you have to have a way to supply water, heating and ventilation. RMS Titanic had her own waterworks aboard and she was capable of pumping and heating water to all parts of the ship through a complex network of valves and pipes. The main water supply was loaded into the ship while she was at port. However, if she happened to run out of fresh water out at sea, she was capable of distilling fresh water from seawater. This process wasn't an easy process, however, since salt deposits could clog up the distillation plant pretty quickly. Insulated ducts throughout the ship moved warm air into each area of the ship using electric fans, and the first-class cabins had their own additional electric heaters. She even had more modern technology that made her state-of-the-art, and that included radiotelegraph equipment, one of my favorite things about Titanic. Titanic's Marconi wireless telegraph was incredible. It was far more advanced for her time than most other vessels, if not all, and I've always been fascinated by it. RMS Titanic's wireless telegraphy equipment was leased to the White Star Line by none other than the Marconi International Marine Communication Company. Marconi also supplied two of their employees to work as operators on Titanic, Harold Bride and Jack Phillips. The two maintained a 24-hour schedule, though usually they received and sent out passengers' personal telegrams, but they did also handle navigational messages and messages from other ships, including ice warnings and weather reports. As well as the radio room, there was a soundproofed silent room next to the radio room that housed the transmitter, a motor generator used for producing alternating currents and other loud equipment. The operator's living quarters was next to the working office as well, making it convenient for them to the radio room. The ship had a, quote, state-of-the-art 5-kilowatt rotary spark gap transmitter and their wireless telegraph call sign was MGY. And this differs from her UK official number, which was 131428, and her official code letters, which were HVMP. A spark gap transmitter is a now obsolete type of radio transmitter which generates radio waves by means of an electric spark. All communication on the wireless transmitter was in Morse code, which is a method used in telecommunication to encode text as characters as standardized sequences of two different signal durations called dots and dashes or dits and daws. It was named after one of the inventors of the telegraph, Samuel Morse. The transmitter on Titanic was one of the first Marconi installations that used a rotary spark gap, which gave Titanic's messages a distinctive, almost musical tone that could easily be told apart from other signals. 
This transmitter was also one of the most powerful in the world, guaranteed to broadcast well over a radius of 350 miles. That means she had better signal strength than all other ships at that time. To get this broadcasting strength, there was an elevated T antenna, also called a T aerial or flat top antenna, that spanned the entire length of the ship, and it was used for both transmitting and receiving messages. The normal operating frequency used was 500 kilohertz, but the equipment was advanced enough to hit the short wavelength of 1000 kilohertz that most smaller vessels with shorter antennas used, and this is important. In the case of an emergency, Titanic would be able to reach out to all sorts of ships, and not just big ocean liners and cruise ships. So, it was safe to say that Titanic was set up well. It is important to note that not all ships had mandatory 24-hour watches on their wireless telegraphs, and this would prove fatal in the case of Titanic. We'll cover that next week. As for her layout, Titanic was 882 feet and 9 inches long, with a 92 foot and 6 inch beam, a height of 175 feet from the keel to the top of the funnels, a draft of 34 feet and 7 inches, a depth of 64 feet and 6 inches, and she spanned 10 decks. She displaced 46,329 gross registered tons for internal volume, and as for her total displacement, it would be 52,310 tons. She could carry 2,435 passengers and 892 crew for a total of 3,327, though there are sources that claim her capacity was 3,547, so we do have to take that into account. All Olympic-class liners had 10 decks, including the top of the officers' quarters, and passengers were able to access eight of these decks. From the bottom up, the decks were the Orlop decks and the tank top underneath that, were the lowest of the low on Titanic, well below the waterline. The Orlop decks were where your cargo space was. The tank top was the inner bottom of the ship's hull, and this is where the ship's boilers, engines, turbines, and generators were kept. It was broken up into the engine rooms and boiler rooms, and passengers, of course, were not allowed in these areas since they were filthy and dangerous. They were connected to the other decks via flights of stairs and twin spiral staircases near the bow led up to D-deck. G-Deck, which was nicknamed the Lower Deck, was the lowest complete deck and it carried passengers. It also had the lowest portholes that were just barely above the waterline and water could lap at the glass frequently. On this deck, there was a traveling post office where letters and parcels were sorted for delivery when the ship docked in New York City, as well as the squash court. Food storage was also on G-Deck and it was interrupted at several spots by Orlop or partial decks that laid over the boiler, engine, and turbine rooms. F-deck, or the middle deck, was the last complete deck. It was mostly for the third and second class accommodations, as well as several departments of the crew. The Turkish bath, kennels for the dogs, the swimming pool, and the third class dining saloon were all on F-deck. E-deck, also called the upper deck, was mostly for passenger accommodations for all three of the classes. As well as these accommodations, there were berths for seamen, stewards, cooks, and coal trimmers. Along the length of the deck was a long passageway that the crew called Scotland Road, and this referenced a famous street in Liverpool. Scotland Road was used by the third-class passengers as well as the crew members. The next deck is D-Deck, also known as the Saloon Deck. On this deck were three large public rooms, the first-class reception room, the first-class dining saloon, and the second-class dining saloon. There was also an open space for the third-class passengers on D-Deck. There were first, second, and third class cabins on D-Deck as well, with berths for the firemen in the bow section of this deck. 
It was also the highest level that the ship's bulkheads could reach, and after the sinking, the bulkheads on Britannic would reach up to sea deck as a result of the sinking of Titanic. Sea deck, also called the shelter deck, was the highest deck to run uninterrupted from stem to stern. There were both well decks on this level, with the aft well deck serving as part of the third-class promenade. Crew cabins were housed below the forecastle on this deck. Third-class public rooms were here just below the poop deck, and in between were the majority of first-class cabins and the second-class library. B deck, also called the bridge deck, was the top weight-bearing deck and the uppermost level of the hull. The rest of the decks will be located in the superstructure. Here, there were more first-class passenger accommodations, with six palatial cabins that had private promenades. There was also the a la carte restaurant and the Café Parisien on this deck for the first class, and both were run by subcontracted chefs and their staff, all of whom perished in the sinking. On this deck, the second class smoking room and entrance hall existed as well as the raised forecastle of the ship being just forward of the bridge deck, and this accommodated the number one hatch, which was the main hatch down to the cargo holds. There were numerous pieces of machinery and the anchor housings on the bridge deck, and aft of this was the raised poop deck, which was 106 feet long. This was used as a promenade by third-class passengers, and it was where many of Titanic's passengers and crew made their last stand as the ship plummeted into the water. The forecastle and poop deck were separate from the bridge deck, with well decks in between. Then there was a deck, also lovingly called the promenade deck, and it was decadent. It extended along the entire 546-foot length of the superstructure uninterrupted, and it was reserved strictly for the first-class passengers to stroll. It also had the first-class cabins, the smoking room, the first-class lounge, the palm court, and the reading and writing rooms. The final deck, the highest on the ship, was the boat deck. The 16 lifeboats and four collapsible boats were on this deck. The bridge and wheelhouse were located at the forward end in front of the captain's and officer's quarters. The bridge loomed eight feet above the deck, extending out to either side so the ship could be controlled easily while navigating the dock. The wheelhouse was in the bridge, and here's where the ship was steered and much of the navigation took place. On the boat deck, there was the entrance to the first class grand staircase and the gymnasium both located amidships along the raised roof for the first-class lounge, where the beautiful glass dome we see in the grand staircase was located. In the aft section of the ship was the roof of the first-class smoking room and the much more modest second-class entrance. The wooden deck was divided into four sections, strictly segregated to keep crew and the first and second class separate. It was divided into a space for officers, the first class, the second class, and the engineers, with the lifeboats lining the sides of the deck except for the first class section, so that the view of the ocean was uninterrupted. If there had been more lifeboats here, possibly everyone could have been saved. The radio room was also located here on the boat deck, making it conveniently close to the bridge. If you were a passenger on Titanic, no matter the class, you could still expect a vast difference in the quality of accommodations on Titanic when compared to other vessels. It was meant to be the epitome of luxury, from the elite down to the common man. According to RMS Titanic's general arrangement plans, she could accommodate 1,006 third-class passengers, 614 second-class, and 833 first-class, for a maximum capacity of 2,453 as we covered earlier. The capacity for crew members exceeded 900, however, as we covered earlier, her crew was 892 men. 
This is where that original capacity of 3,547 comes from, citing from many documents of her original configuration. Again, there is a debate on this, so I'm going to leave her capacity at the standard 3,327 passengers and crew. As well as having state-of-the-art technology like we covered earlier, her design was progressive as well. Most passenger liners at the time were typically decorated in a heavy, dark style like that of an English country house or a manor house, which was historically the main residence of the lord of a manor. The design seen in these types of liners was dark, full of patterned wallpapers and lots of dark wood tones. A good example of this would be the interior of the RMS Lusitania and RMS Mauritania. As for RMS Titanic, she was laid out to be lighter and more open, similar to that of more modern high-class hotels. The Ritz Hotel was actually an inspiration for some of her finishes and furnishings. The first-class cabins were laid out in the Empire style, which is an early 19th century design movement in architecture, furniture, and other decorative arts representing the second phase of neoclassicism. This style flourished between 1800 and 1815 during the Consulate and French Empire periods. This style ranged from the Renaissance to Louis Quinn's styles, and it was used to lavishly decorate public rooms and cabins in both the second and first class areas of RMS Titanic. The goal was to make the passengers feel like they were in a floating hotel instead of on board a ship, and one passenger later recalled that after entering the ship's interior, you would quote, at once lose the feeling that we are on board ship and seem instead to be entering the hall of some great house on shore. All pictures available of Titanic really sell this point. It does seem bougie, luxurious, and just exquisite. First-class passengers had a lot to be excited about on Titanic that you might not find on other ships at the time, including a squash court, a seven-foot deep saltwater swimming pool, a gymnasium to work out in, and a Turkish bath. The Turkish bath itself had an electric bath, steam room, massage room, cool room, and a hot room. And if that doesn't seem luxurious enough, the rest assured that the enormous first-class common rooms were spacious and beautifully decorated, oozing excess and riches. The first-class lounge was styled after the Palace of Versailles in France, which was the former residence of King Louis XIV as well as a massive reception room when you came aboard the ship, and a reading and writing room, and for the gentlemen, a men's smoking room. The a la carte restaurant was styled after the Ritz Hotel and was run as a concession by the famous Italian restaurateur Gaspare Gatti. Ironically, he's the most famous now for his work on Titanic. The Café Parisien was styled like a French sidewalk cafe, even including ivy-covered trellises and wicker furniture, and this was a section to the a la carte restaurant. As we covered last week, after the success of this, Olympic had one added as well that was more open so you could eat in the fresh air. This came as an additional cost to first-class passengers. In the Café Parisien, the elitist of the elite could dine on fine, haute French cuisine while bathed in the luxury surrounding them. If neither of these restaurants suits your fancy, fret not. The Veranda Café, where tea and light refreshments were served in total view of the ocean, was the place for you. I'd definitely be at the Veranda Café, enjoying a cup of tea and watching the waves. The dining saloon for the first class on D-Deck was designed by Charles Fitzroy Dahl, and the room was massive, at 114 feet long by 92 feet wide, making it as wide as the entire beam of the ship. It was actually the largest room afloat, and could seat almost 600 passengers at a time. I've never been on a modern cruise ship, most of which have larger dining rooms, but I can't imagine Titanic's dining room. That is insane to think that it was that big and that beautifully decorated.
As for the third class, which was commonly referred to as steerage at the time, the accommodations were far less bougie as first and second. However, they were still better than that of many other ships at the time. They were still, for the most part, segregated as we saw in earlier ships like SS Atlantic, with single men in the bow, single ladies and families in the stern to protect the single ladies from the single men, though there were plenty of common areas for everyone to mingle freely and this wasn't upheld as strictly as we saw it to be aboard SS Atlantic. White Star Line was adopting improved standards for the immigrant class because they knew that much of their clientele and profit came from the third class. On most other North Atlantic passenger ships that were contemporaries of Titanic, third class consisted of little more than open dormitories with rows upon rows of bunks in the forward part of the vessel, where hundreds of people would sleep with poor ventilation and inadequate food or toilets. So it would be filthy, hot, and miserable for the entire voyage. As well as this, White Star Line provided small but private comfortable cabins capable of housing two, four, six, eight, or ten passengers. This was a huge step up for third-class travel, and White Star Line knew what they were providing. The third class also had their own dining saloon, as well as public gathering space such as the open deck space on the poop deck at the stern, the forward and aft well decks, and a large open space on D-deck that could be used as a social hall of sorts. There was even a smoking room for the third class men, as well as a general room on C-deck that could be used as a reading and writing room. They weren't glamorous, but they were still well above par for the time period. All three classes had leisure activities to pass the time at sea. It's boring to just stare at the ocean for a week, so there were amenities like the library, smoking rooms, the gymnasium, and areas for the passengers to socialize and chat on the open decks. There was also areas to relax on the promenades in deck chairs or wooden benches, and there was a roster of sorts posted before Titanic set sail so that the public would know which members of the elite were aboard the ship. Ambitious mothers also would take the opportunity to use the list to pick out well-to-do bachelors who they could introduce their beautiful daughters to in hopes of creating a lasting family dynasty, similar to what we see in James Cameron's Rose DeWitt Bucator Inn. She was engaged to Cal Hockley to set her and her mother Ruth up and save them from the debt her late father left behind. Of course, one of her most distinctive and memorable features was the Grand Staircase. It was built of solid English oak with a sweeping curve, and it descended through seven decks of the ship from the boat deck all the way down to E-deck. After this, it ended in a simplified single flight of stairs on F-deck. An enormous dome of wrought iron and glass enclosed it, allowing natural light to flood into the space and make it feel light, airy, and large. Off each landing of the staircase, there was access to ornate entrance halls paneled in the William and Mary style, which is a furniture design common from 1700 to 1725. The rooms were lit by ormolu, which is a gilding technique of applying finely ground high-carat gold mercury amalgam to a bronze fixture and crystal light fixtures. Imagine how glittery, light, and gorgeous all of these landings must have been. The uppermost landing on the boat deck had a large wooden panel that contained a clock, and we've seen this in multiple movies. The clock was ordained with figures of honor and glory crowning time around the clock's face. Very sadly, when the ship snapped in two, it snapped through the grand staircase and thus it was entirely destroyed in the sinking, leaving behind a void in the middle of the ship that modern explorers used to explore all of the different deck spaces. It's been suggested, but not confirmed, so do take this with a pinch of salt, that the entire grand staircase was actually ejected upwards through the dome during the sinking, 
I have no idea why this would happen, but that's actually terrifying to think about. All pictures we have of the grand staircase are actually of the identical staircase aboard RMS Olympic. Titanic wasn't just meant for ferrying passengers, however. As RMS Titanic, she was a Royal Mail steamer, and this meant that she could carry a substantial amount of mail and cargo with her. She could carry mail under contract with the Royal Mail and for the United States Post Office Department, and so she needed a place to keep all of these valuables. There was 26,800 cubic feet of space reserved for the storage of parcels, letters, and specie, which is a type of bullion, coins, and other monetary valuables. The sea post office on RMS Titanic on G-Deck was manned by five postal clerks. Three were American and two were British. They each worked 13 hours daily, seven days a week, and they would sort roughly 60,000 parcels daily. Talk about thankless work. When you have people on your ship, you also end up with a lot of baggage, especially for the upper classes. For the first and second class luggage, there was 19,455 cubic feet reserved. However, mail and luggage weren't the only items in the cargo hold. There was regular cargo too. This ranged from food to furniture and even a 1912 Renault type CE Coupe de Ville motor car. Despite the rumors of riches on Titanic, most of the cargo was just regular old stuff. No gold, jewels, or heart-of-the-ocean necklaces. One of the more valuable things on board, a jeweled copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which is the 1859 translation from Persian to English by Edward Fitzgerald of a selection of quatrains attributed to Omar Khayyam, was only valued at 405 pounds in 1912, which would be about 59,185 pounds in 2023. As we know from the Senate inquiry into the sinking, there was a claim for the compensation filed with Commissioner Gilchrist for the single most expensive item on the ship, which was a large neoclassical oil painting by French artist Mary-Joseph Blondel, entitled La Circusseine à Boine. The painting's owner was a first-class passenger named Moritz Hakan Bjornstrom Stefansson, a Swedish businessman who had survived the sinking, and he filed a claim for $100,000 to compensate for the loss of the painting. Just for perspective, that would be about $3,059,763 today. To get this cargo on board, Titanic needed cranes, and so she had eight electric cranes, three steam winches, and four electric winches to lift all of this cargo, baggage, and parcels into and out of the cargo holds. It's estimated, however not confirmed, that RMS Titanic used around 415 tons of coal in Southampton alone just running these cranes and winches to load the ship and provide light and heat to the crew working before the ship left Southampton. Of everything we've talked about design-wise so far, the most important has to be the lifeboats. Just like her older sister Olympic, which we covered last week, RMS Titanic had 20 lifeboats. She had two emergency cutters with a capacity of 40 people each, as well as four Engelhart collapsible lifeboats labeled A to D that could carry up to 47 people, and 14 standard wooden Harland and Wolf lifeboats capable of carrying up to 65 people each. This adds up to a grand total of 1,178 seats in the lifeboats. If the ship was fully loaded at 3,327 people, this would doom 2,149 of them. All of Titanic's lifeboats were stowed on the boat deck and were connected to davits by ropes, with the exception of collapsibles A and B. All of the lifeboats other than the collapsible boats were numbered from 1 to 16, with the starboard having all of the odd numbers and the port side having all of the even numbers. The numbers started with their lowest numerical value and moved upwards as we moved toward the stern of the ship. 
both of the cutters were kept constantly swung out and hanging from their davits so they could be launched immediately in case of an emergency. Collapsibles C and D were kept on the boat deck in their davits, immediately behind 1 and 2, respectively. A and B were stored upside down on top of the roof to the officers' quarters, and it made it difficult to launch these by hand due to their weight and the lack of davits, and this would have consequences in the sinking. Each boat carried food, water, blankets, and a single spare life belt. Lifeline ropes attached to the sides of the lifeboats would allow them to save additional swimmers if needed. I'm a geek for davits, so we're going to geek out on them for a minute. And we're going to start by defining them in case you don't know what a davit is. A davit is a small crane on board a ship, especially one of a pair for suspending or lowering lifeboats. Britannic had the coolest davits, and I can't wait to cover those at the end of the month. As for Titanic, she had 16 sets of davits, each able to handle four lifeboats as Alexander Carlyle had originally planned for. And this means, dear listeners, Carlyle planned for RMS Titanic to carry up to 64 standard wooden lifeboats. That would have been enough seats for up to 4,000 people, much more than her actual maximum capacity and everyone would have been saved. So why didn't they do that? They didn't want to clutter the deck space and affect the view for the first class passengers. I don't know if you can feel it, but I just rolled my eyes into the back of my skull so far they may have just gotten stuck. Instead of going the safe route and having up to 64 lifeboats, White Star Line went with the almost bare minimum that the Board of Trade required, capable of saving only one-third of Titanic's total capacity. The Board of Trade's regulations required British vessels over 10,000 tons, which Titanic qualifies as, to carry at least 16 lifeboats with 990 seats for people. So we do have to give credit where credit is due and acknowledge the fact that White Star Line did have more than what was required in terms of lifeboats. The reason for this messed up line of thinking is that lifeboats were originally meant to ferry passengers between the sinking vessel and the rescuing vessel, not to keep the entire population of the ship afloat until help arrived. Had SS Californian, which was only about 10 miles away from Titanic, responded to Titanic's pleas for aid, the lifeboats probably could have ferried all of the passengers to Californian as planned. However, as we all know, this did not happen, and this is why ships are required to carry more lifeboat space than there are passengers and have regular lifeboat drills. Due to the enormity of the Olympic class, there was a massive engineering hurdle that Harland and Wolf had to jump. At the time, no shipbuilder had ever attempted such massive ships. The ships were built on Queen's Island in Belfast, which is now lovingly known as the Titanic Quarter. To make room for the slipways needed for the behemoths, Harland and Wolf tore down three existing smaller slipways and built two large enough for the sisters. At that time, they were also the biggest slipways the world had ever seen. If you're unfamiliar with a slipway, it's also known as a boat ramp, boat launch, or boat deployer, and it is a ramp on the shore by which ships or boats can be moved to and from the water. If you've ever done casual boating at most local lakes, then you may have seen a much smaller version. Slipways for ships can be lowered to allow ships to enter the water easier, and in the smaller version for boats, you can simply back the boat trailer into the water using a truck or SUV that can haul it, detach the boat into the water, and drive off. It's the same concept for Titanic, just in a much larger scale. The construction for the two sisters, RMS Olympic and RMS Titanic, took place almost simultaneously as they sat side by side. Olympic, as we know from last week, was first laid down on December 16, 1908, and Titanic would be laid down three months later on March 31, 1909. 
Each ship took roughly 26 months to build, and they followed almost identical construction processes since the ships were nearly identical themselves. Both ships were built this way, but we are going to focus on Titanic's perspective from now on, so keep Olympic in the very back of your mind. Titanic was designed like a big box girder on the water. A box or tubular girder is a girder that forms an enclosed tube with multiple walls, as opposed to an I or H beam. The keel was supposed to be like the spine of the ship with the frames acting like the rib cage, and at the base, there was a 5 foot 3 inch deep double bottom that supported 300 frames. Each of these frames was between 24 inches and 36 inches apart, with each frame reaching around 66 feet long. The frames went up to B-deck, and they'd be covered in the steel plates that created the outer hull of Titanic. The rivets would hold the steel to the framework, with the rivets themselves adding 1,200 tons of weight to the ship. These rivets were either hammered in by hand or by hydraulic riveting machines. On Titanic, there were 2,000 enormous rolled steel plates. Each single sheet weighed 2.5 to 3 tons, was roughly 1 to 1.5 inches thick, and was 30 feet long and 6 feet wide. They were adhered to the hole in a clinkered pattern. We have talked about this in one video in the past, but just to refresh, clinker build is a method of boat building where the edges of hull planks overlap one another. The other popular type of hull construction is carval construction where the hull is a smooth surface, and generally it is considered much stronger than a clinker built hull. Later in the 1990s, experiments were performed to test the strength of the steel used on the hull, and it was found to be weak and brittle when subjected to extremely cold temperatures, much like the ocean waters on April 14, 1912. Though the quality of the material was good, it just wasn't as advanced as shipbuilding is now, and our advancement in shipbuilding and technology is partly due to the sinking of Titanic. Of the last items adhered to Titanic before launching were the two side anchors and single center anchor. The creation of these anchors was an utter nightmare to say the least, being they were so large, with the center anchor being the biggest anchor known to man at that point, and it weighed almost 16 tons. To transport this enormous anchor from the Noah Hingley and Sons Limited Forge Shop near Dudley all the way to Belfast, it took 20 Clydesdale draft horses and one sturdy wagon to pull the anchor to the Dudley Rail Station two miles away from the shop. From there, the anchor took a train to Fleetwood before being loaded onto a ship and steaming into Belfast to meet her destined ship. For a little perspective, one Clydesdale horse can pull between 2,000 and 8,000 pounds depending upon the size of the horse, so their power cannot be underestimated. For even more perspective, one Husky can pull 88 pounds. So to pull the anchor for Titanic, you'd need between 455 and 1,818 Huskies to pull the anchor for Titanic to the rail station. That's a lot of fur. If you're wondering why I chose Huskies, it's because I have one of my own. Enough about Huskies, let's get back to Titanic. It cannot be understated how dangerous and difficult the construction for the Olympic class's eldest sisters was. And not only this, but safety regulations at Harlan and Wolf concerning the 15,000 men who worked there at the time would flabbergast us today. It was absolutely pathetic. Most of the work was done without safety gear like hand guards or hard hats on the machinery. Not only that, but children in the workforce was common, and so children worked in these conditions as well. During the building of Titanic, 246 injuries were recorded, let alone those that went unnoticed, with 28 being listed as severe. 
And by severe, we mean legs being crushed under falling pieces of steel or arms being sawed off by machinery. Six people actually died during the construction and fitting out, with two others dying in the shipyard workshops and sheds. Just before the ship was launched, a large piece of wood fell on top of a worker and crushed him, killing him instantly. To me, that's just bad juju going into this ship before she even hits the water. It's eerie to think about. After this unfortunate mishap and the tedious construction, Titanic finally was launched just after lunch at 12.15 p.m. on March 31, 1909, in the presence of 100,000 spectators, as well as her proud owners, J. Bruce Ismay, Lord Peary, and J.P. Morgan. To prepare the slipway and make Titanic's entrance as easy as possible, 22 tons of tallow and soap were greased on the slipway to ease the ship into the River Lagan. Imagine applying that much soap to a slipway. That is just crazy to me, but it's also genius. Per the White Star Line's traditional policy, Titanic wasn't formally named or christened right then and there during her launching. Any stories about the bottle of champagne not breaking against her hull and bouncing off during her launching is simply just a myth. She was launched without alcohol of any kind involved. She was then towed to the fitting out berth, and she'd spend the next year there getting her engines, funnels, and superstructure placed, and the interior was completed during this time as well. RMS Olympic and RMS Titanic, like I said, were twins. However, they were fraternal for a few major reasons. There were extensive changes to the interior, one of which was the change of B-deck promenade spaces, which weren't popular on Olympic, into first-class cabins, including two posh parlor suites with private promenade deck space. The a la carte restaurant was given more space, and they added the Café Parisien, which wasn't a feature on the Olympic. The biggest difference on the outside of Titanic and later Britannic, compared to her oldest sister Olympic, was the steel screen with sliding windows installed along the forward half of the A-deck promenade to add more shelter for passengers from cold sea spray and wind. This was a last-minute addition to the building plans by J. Bruce Ismay, and because of this and the aforementioned changes, Titanic was substantially heavier than Olympic, making her the largest ship afloat. The last-minute changes alongside pauses in the work and setbacks due to Olympic's collision in September 1911 delayed the launch of Titanic. If Titanic had been launched earlier, it's possible she wouldn't have come into contact with that iceberg. However, we shouldn't blame Olympic for this at all. It's a myriad of factors that went into her delays. After she was finally finished, it was on to sea trials for RMS Titanic. Most of these stories, I tell you, this ship went to sea trials and she passed. Luckily for us with Titanic, we have details of what happened on these sea trials and how they really went. She left Belfast for her sea trials early in the morning at 6 a.m. on Tuesday, April 2nd, 1912 two days after her fitting out was finished and eight days before she'd be in Southampton. Due to bad weather, her sea trials could not take place on Monday, but by the end of the day on Monday, the weather had cleared up and she was ready to go the next day. For the sea trials, there were 41 crewmen and 78 firemen, greasers, and stokers. It's not clear whether or not there were stewards aboard, but it doesn't seem like there were. Various representatives of multiple companies were on board Titanic for her sea trials, and this included Harold A. Sanderson of the International Mercantile Marine Company and Edward Wilding and Thomas Andrews of Harland & Wolfe. The radio operators Jack Phillips and Harold Bride served as radio operators during the sea trials to fine-tune the Marconi equipment, with Francis Carruthers, a surveyor from the Board of Trade, also in attendance to make sure everything was in tip-top shape and followed regulation. 
Unfortunately, J. Bruce Ismay and Lord Peary were both too sick to attend the sea trials. During the trials, there were a number of tests performed. Think of it like buying a used car off a lot. You take the car out on the highway and get it up to top speed, take it back on the back roads and brake hard to make sure it stops, and test to make sure the blinkers, radio, and heater works, among other things. It's the same thing for sea trials, just on a larger and more professional scale. It was all carried out first in the Belfast Low before she made her way out to the Irish Sea. There were a number of tests on her handling characteristics over the course of 12 hours. She'd be driven at different speeds, pushing to see how fast she could go, just like you do with a car on the highway. While at speed, she was tested for her turning ability and a quote, crash stop, which is just like slamming on the brakes in a car. Though how they did this was to take the engines from full ahead and reverse it to full astern. She stopped in three minutes and 15 seconds after 850 yards. She sailed for about 80 nautical miles, averaging about 18 knots during this time. And during the sea trials, she maxed out at just under 21 knots, though we know they'd pushed past this threshold during the maiden voyage. She returned to Belfast at 7 p.m. and Carruthers was impressed enough to sign an agreement and account of voyages and crew, which was valid for 12 months. This agreement deemed Titanic seaworthy and capable of carrying passengers. An hour after this was signed, Titanic left Belfast for the very last time, sailing 570 nautical miles down to Southampton in about 28 hours. She arrived in Southampton on April 4th around midnight, being towed to berth 44. There she'd be prepared for her journey and await the arrival of the rest of her crew and all of the passengers embarking in Southampton. Six days would pass to the morning that she left Southampton, Wednesday, April 10th, 1912 and after this it was time to set sail. That's it for the building of Titanic, every nitty gritty detail I could find. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this very special episode and I can't wait for next week when we get into the sinking. For anyone interested I have my sources for this video's research listed in the video description. For my audio only listeners it will be in the episode description. Both of the eldest sisters of the Olympic class, RMS Olympic and RMS Titanic, were registered in Liverpool for their home port. The offices of both White Star Line and Cunard Line were in Liverpool as well, making it an easy choice for a home base. Until the introduction of RMS Olympic, most British ocean liners sailed to New York City from Liverpool instead of Southampton, heading to a port of call in Queenstown, Ireland, which is current-day Cove, Ireland. Since White Star Line's conception in 1845, the majority of their operations took place in Liverpool. In 1907, however, White Star Line revolutionized the transatlantic passenger trade by opening up another route from Southampton to New York with a stop in Cherbourg and one in Queenstown. And this was known as White Star Line's express service. One of the main advantages of many that Southampton had over Liverpool was its proximity to London, as well as the fact that Southampton is located on the south coast of Great Britain, so it's an ideal place to travel south along the English Channel and make their port of call at Cherbourg, which is located on the northern coast of France. This way, British ships could capitalize on the clientele from continental Europe before recrossing the Channel and scooping up more passengers from Queenstown. The route from Southampton to Cherbourg to Queenstown to New York City became so immensely popular that most British ocean liners, even outside the White Star Line, began using that port after World War I. 
Though we shouldn't knock on Liverpool since that's where the Beatles came from and the shipping companies knew Liverpool needed her fair dues as well and so they continued to register ships there up until the early 1960s. Queen Elizabeth II, also nicknamed QE2, was a Cunarder and one of the first ships registered in Southampton when she was introduced into service in 1969. There's only one ocean liner in the world that still performs regular transatlantic crossings between Southampton and New York City, and that is another Cunard line ship, the RMS Queen Mary II. If you've listened to our channel for a while, you're familiar with my husband Derek, and I've told him I'd love to take a cruise on Queen Mary II for our honeymoon. Fingers crossed, it's tied between that and Hawaii for us. Okay, back to Titanic. As for RMS Titanic, her maiden voyage was to be the first of many running this famous route on westbound runs, and she was intended to return to Plymouth in England when heading home from New York. Her entire schedule of planned voyages all the way up until December 1912 is extant, and it's so sad to look back upon. They were so sure and so full of hope, and it just wasn't meant to be. After the route was established, four White Star liners were assigned to it before the Olympic class. RMS Teutonic and RMS Majestic from the Teutonic class, RMS Oceanic, and the new RMS Adriatic, the youngest sister in the Big Four. I'm planning on covering the Big Four here relatively soon, so if you'd like to see that, let me know in the comments section. RMS Olympic would enter service in 1911, and so she would take the place of RMS Teutonic, and Titanic was planned to take the place of RMS Majestic. RMS Teutonic would be placed on the Dominion Line's Canadian service after RMS Olympic took her place on the Southampton to New York City route. In August of 1911, RMS Adriatic would then be transferred to the Liverpool to New York City route, which was still considered White Star Line's main service at that time. In November, RMS Majestic would be withdrawn from service entirely and mothballed. In nautical terms, mothballing a ship means setting it aside temporarily, postponing work on it, or to keep in readiness for eventual use. After RMS Titanic sank, RMS Majestic was placed back on the Southampton to New York City service alongside RMS Olympic. Initially, the White Star Line planned on Olympic and Titanic running the same routine their predecessors had, with each of them sailing once every three weeks from Southampton and New York City. Typically, they'd leave at noon each Wednesday from Southampton and each Saturday from New York City, which would allow the White Star Line to offer weekly services across the Atlantic both ways. If this had gone according to plan and Britannic had joined her two sisters, I fully believe the three of them would have been the unstoppable force of luxury on the Atlantic Ocean, offering a weekly bougie service across the ocean. There were special trains to take passengers to Southampton from London and to Cherbourg from Paris, scheduled to coincide with transatlantic crossings of the Olympic Sisters. The new deep water dock in Southampton that opened in 1911, which was specifically designed for the enormous ships, was known as the White Star Dock at that time. However, at this point in our story, RMS Titanic is in port in Southampton. She isn't going anywhere without her crew. We'll get to them next. RMS Titanic had about 885 crew on board when she left Southampton, and like similar vessels at the time, she didn't have a permanent crew. This meant that the majority of her crew were casual workers who hopped aboard a few hours before she left Southampton. There was a recruitment process and it began on March 23, 1912, 
with some of these recruits being sent to Belfast to take part in her sea trials, which we covered last week. The most senior of White Star Line's captains and the Commodore of the line due to his experience and seniority in the company was Captain E.J. Smith. He'd captained RMS Majestic for many years, and he'd captained RMS Olympic before RMS Titanic, but we covered that in our Olympic episode at the beginning of this month. He'd be taken from RMS Olympic to serve on RMS Titanic, and this was supposed to be his final voyage before he'd retire, which is just heartbreaking when you really sit and think about it. The chief mate of Titanic was another RMS Olympic transfer, Mr. Henry Tingle Wild, with the previous chief mate and first officers being bumped down to first officer and second officer. The first officer was William McMaster Murdoch, and the second officer was Charles Lightuller, with the original second officer just being dropped from the crew. His name was David Blair, and I'm sure he considered himself lucky after he had heard what transpired from that ill-fated maiden voyage. Herbert Pittman MBE, which stands for the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire and is a British Order of Chivalry, was the third officer and he was the only deck officer who didn't serve in the Royal Navy Reserve. Pittman was also the second to last surviving officer of the tragedy. If you were part of Titanic's crew, you'd find yourself in one of three principal departments. Victualing, which is meal planning, with 494 crew being designated here, Engine, with 325 others being designated here. And finally, Deck, with 66 crew designated for this position. Most of the crew weren't even seamen. Most of them were stokers, engineer, or firemen responsible for taking care of the engines, or stewards, stewardesses, or galley staff that were in charge of taking care of the passengers and providing that white star level of service at sea. Of the crew, 97% were men, and merely 23 of them were female and they were primarily stewardesses. There were plenty of other positions, if none of the above tickle your fancy. You could have been a cleaner, bed maker, waiter, dishwasher, fishmonger, baker, chef, butcher, gymnasium instructor, laundry person, or even a printer who was responsible for creating a daily newspaper for the passengers called the Atlantic Daily Bulletin. It was filled with news passed along from the ship's two wireless operators, Jack Phillips and Harold Bride. For most of the crew, they signed up in Southampton on April 6, 1912, with 669 crew coming from Southampton, and 40% of these men and women were natives of Southampton. This is why the sinking and the tragedy of Titanic is so important for the town of Southampton, since so many of the victims were natives. This is why the commercialization and romanticizing of the sinking is such a delicate, tough subject to discuss. As for the rest of the crew, a few of the specialist staff were subcontractors or self-employed, like the wireless operators. They were employed by the Marconi International Marine Communication Company. Other employees that fell into this category were the staff of the a la carte restaurant and the Café Parisien, the eight musicians who were employees of a separate agency and traveled in the second class, and the five postal clerks, who worked for the United States Post Office Department and the Royal Mail. As for your pay as a crew member, it varied wildly. Captain Smith made a handsome 105 pounds a month, which is equivalent to about 15,344 pounds and 33 pence in 2023. The stewardesses, however, earned a mere three pounds and 10 shillings a month for their services, and that only adds up to 453 pounds in 2023 given inflation. However, it wasn't all bad. 
the lower level staff could receive tips to supplement their income. So if you were an outstanding first class steward or stewardess, you could make a decent living for yourself. Now let's imagine you are a steward or stewardess for the first class on RMS Titanic. You'd find yourself surrounded by the elite and affluent, with some of them being Mr. John Jacob Astor IV and his lovely young wife Madeline, who is pregnant at the time, and even Benjamin Guggenheim and the owner of Macy's, Isidore Strauss, and his wife Ida. Now, there were many more worthy of noting, the unsinkable Margaret Molly Brown, Archibald Gracie, and even the chairman of the Holland American line, Mr. Johan Rucklin. We aren't going to cover everybody's name, just know that most everyone who was considered a somebody was there, and if you were their steward, it would be a lot of pressure. Of Titanic's approximately 1,317 passengers, 324 were in the first class, 284 were in the second class, and 709 were in the third class. Roughly 66% or 869 of these passengers were male, and 34% or 447 were female among all of the classes. There was a total of 107 children aboard, a majority of them traveling with their families in the third class. Surprisingly, for the amount of hype around the launching of this ship, she was considerably under her maximum capacity of 2,453 passengers for her illustrious maiden voyage. Considering the disaster to follow, it was sadly a good thing that there weren't more aboard. Usually, much-anticipated luxury vessels like Titanic would have been fully booked, but there was a national coal strike in the UK that caused a huge disruption to shipping schedules in the spring of 1912, and it caused a lot of crossings to be cancelled altogether. So, many passengers destined to cross on Titanic decided to postpone until the strike was over, and it officially finished a few days before Titanic set sail. But by that point, it was too late for those passengers to rebook, and so she was at a smaller capacity. The only real reason Titanic was able to sail during the coal strike was because coal was taken from ships tied up in Southampton and put into her bunkers, like the Inman Line's SS City of New York and White Star Line's RMS Oceanic, and thankfully Olympic had just returned from a journey, and her leftover coal that was being stored at the White Star Dock was also added into Titanic's bunkers. There would be a fire in the coal bunkers on board Titanic that might have contributed to her sinking, but we will cover that a little later on. J.P. Morgan, the owner of Titanic and the International Mercantile Marine Company, which owned the White Star Line, was supposed to be on board Titanic, but he canceled at the last minute for some reason. Two prominent members of White Star Line and Harlan and Wolf were aboard the ship, however. The managing director for the White Star Line, J. Bruce Ismay, the son of Thomas Ismay, and Titanic's designer Thomas Andrews, a kind-hearted, generous man who was aboard Titanic to observe problems, take notes for tweaking later on, and assess her general performance. He was known to be a genius of design and incredibly detailed. I would have loved to watch him survey the ship. The reason why we don't exactly know how many people were on board and the number is only an estimate is because not everyone who bought tickets boarded the ship, and some were only on board until they got off at one of the two ports of call. Around 50 people cancelled for this or that, but who knows if the number of cancellations was higher or lower. As for the fares, they did vary depending upon which class was booked. If you were booking as a first-class passenger, you'd pay about £23, which doesn't sound like much, but that would be about £3,361.14 in 2023, 
or even up to 870 pounds in high season, which would be 127,138 pounds and 77 pence in 2023. For the third class, you'd pay about seven pounds and five shillings in 1912. And this is if you paid for your fare in London, Southampton, or Queenstown. And that would be about 1,096 pounds and two pence. For comparison, to sail on Cunard's Queen Mary II for an eastbound transatlantic crossing spanning eight nights would cost between $1,009 and $5,349 per person, depending upon which room you choose. I'm only using Queen Mary 2 for this comparison simply because QM2 and Titanic are transatlantic ocean liners. The fare is paid, the crew is settled, and finally the passengers have been embarked in Southampton. Finally, dear listeners, it's time to set sail. On Wednesday, April 10th, 1912, at 9.30 a.m. after the crew had settled onto the ship, the passengers started to arrive after the London and Southwestern Railway's boat train from London Waterloo Station reached Southampton Terminus Railway's station on the quayside, right beside Titanic's berth. The third-class passengers were first, since they were the vast majority on the ship, with first and second class following after this up to an hour before the ship was to set sail. Stewards showed up to lead passengers to their cabins, and for the first class, they were personally greeted by none other than Captain Smith himself. As for third class, they'd be screened for sickness or physical impairment that might lead them not being allowed into the United States, since the White Star Line wanted to avoid having to carry anyone who failed the United States examination back east on the Atlantic. Of the estimated 920 passengers that boarded in Southampton, 494 were in the third class, 247 were in the second class, and 179 were in the first class. And, as we know, additional passengers would be scooped up both in Cherbourg and in Queenstown before she'd set out for the open Atlantic, stretching her legs for the first time. As scheduled, Titanic left the dock at noon, narrowly avoiding a collision with the moored liners SS City of New York of the American Line and RMS Oceanic, her destined running mate on the route. The reason for this accident was because of Titanic's massive displacement as she passed by, with a bulge of water in her wake lifting the ships and then dropping them into a trough. SS City of New York's mooring cables could not take the sudden strain Titanic put on them and they snapped free from the dock, swinging the ocean liner wildly stern-first toward Titanic's bow. Luckily, the Vulcan, a nearby tugboat, swooped in and took SS City of New York under tow, saving both ships from a collision. Captain Smith, heart-pounding, ordered the ship's engines full astern at this moment. It was a close one with this brand new ship, and he didn't want another collision on his record like the Olympic and HMS Hawk. The accident was avoided by just four feet of distance, and this incident put a delay on Titanic's departure for roughly an hour while SS City of New York was corralled like a loose horse. My only thought here is, if she'd collided with SS City of New York and had to return to Belfast for repairs, would that have delayed her journey enough to avoid icebergs altogether? We'll never know. After this whole incident was handled safely, Titanic steamed ahead through the complex tides and channels of Southampton Water, which is a tidal estuary south of Southampton, and then she passed into the Solent, a strait between the Isle of Wight and mainland Great Britain roughly 20 miles long. She left behind the Southampton pilot as they passed the NAB lightship, which is currently NAB Tower, a tower for anti-submarine protection in the Solent during World War I that replaced the well-known lightship that was sunk during the war. It marks the entry into deep water past the Solent. 
she steamed ahead into the English Channel, heading for Cherbourg about 77 nautical miles away. The weather was windy, cold, and overcast, but still pretty decent. There was a tiny problem at Cherbourg. There weren't berths large enough for Titanic. They hadn't prepared for a ship of her stature quite yet, and so that is where the tender boats came into play. There were two tender boats to tend to the Olympic-class liners, SS Traffic and SS Nomadic, the latter of which is still in existence as a museum ship in permanent dry dock in Belfast, Ireland today. These tenders would ferry the passengers from the shore to Titanic, SS Traffic primarily for the third class and SS Nomadic tending mostly to the first and second class. These two tender ships were launched shortly after Titanic. Titanic arrived in Cherbourg four hours after leaving Southampton, and there she received 270 more passengers via the tender boats, 102 third-class passengers, 30 second-class, and 142 in the first class. 24 passengers from Southampton left Titanic on the tenders to head back to shore, being that they only paid for a cross-channel passage, and it only took 90 minutes to transfer all of the passengers to and from the shore. At 8 p.m., Titanic weighed anchor, which is a nautical term indicating the final preparation of a sea vessel for getting underway, and she headed off for Queenstown, Ireland. The weather was still cold and windy that evening, so most everyone was within the belly of Titanic, exploring the beautiful liner. At 11.30 a.m. on Thursday, April 11, 1912, Titanic steamed into Cork Harbor, which is a natural harbor and river estuary at the mouth of the River Lee in County Cork, Ireland, on the south coast. It was partly cloudy that day with a brisk wind, but a bit warmer than the day before. It would be an alright day for a stroll along the boat deck, if you so pleased. 123 more passengers would cross the gangway onto Titanic in Queenstown, three of which were from the first class, seven from the second class, and 113 were third class. This shows the economic difference between people in England, France, and Ireland at the time, in my opinion. There were many Irish immigrants longing for a better life in America, where they'd sadly faced discrimination there as well, with signs plastered all over businesses stating, Irish need not apply. Interestingly, President John F. Kennedy, who hailed from Irish heritage, faced discrimination of this sort along as the rest of his family. But as we know, the Kennedy dynasty would prevail in America during the mid to late 20th century. There were passengers who disembarked in Queenstown after only purchasing an overnight passage from Southampton, and there were only seven of these passengers, one of which being Francis Brown, a Jesuit trainee and a keen photographer who took many beautiful photos of Titanic, including one of her last known photographs. A Jesuit is a member of the Society of Jesus, and it is a religious order of clerics regular of pontifical rite for men in the Catholic Church headquartered in Rome, for those who didn't know. As for the last known photograph of Titanic as she steamed away from Cherbourg was taken by another cross-channel passenger, Kate O'Dell. Derek actually purchased a copy of this photograph for me for Christmas one year, and it hangs in our house. It's a gorgeous, haunting photograph. There was one very unofficial departure of a crew member, a stoker by the name of John Coffey, and he was a native of Queenstown who snuck off the ship by hiding under mailbags that were being taken to shore. After everyone was ashore and the passengers ferried to Titanic were settled, she'd weigh anchor for the very last time at 1.30 p.m., though no one figured this would be the last. She set sail for New York City, full of hope, a ship of dreams. Before we really dive into the sinking, we do have to note what the original plan was. She was supposed to dock at New York Pier 59 on the morning of April 17, 1912, though we all know she'd never make it. 
She left Queenstown and followed the Irish coast as far as Fastnet Rock, which is roughly 55 nautical miles from Queenstown. From there, she would travel 1,620 nautical miles along a great circle route across the northern Atlantic Ocean. In mathematics, a great circle or orthodrome is the circular intersection of a sphere and a plane passing through the sphere's center point. So essentially, this was the path of least resistance. Titanic would just pass the part in the ocean known as the corner, just southeast of Newfoundland, and this spot is where westbound steamships would carry out a change of course to follow the coastline. Titanic was only a few hours past the corner on a rum line leg of 1,023 nautical miles to Nantucket Shoals Light when she would meet her maker. A rum line, rum or loxodrome, is an arc crossing all meridians of longitude at the same angle. That is, a path with constant bearing as measured relative to true north. Nantucket Shoals Light marks a dangerously shallow water in the Atlantic Ocean that extends from Nantucket Island, Massachusetts, eastward for 23 miles and southeastward for 40 miles, and in some places it's as shallow as 3 feet. The Italian ocean liner SS Andrea Doria sunk near Nantucket in the 1950s, and we have an episode on her if you're interested. Had Titanic not struck the iceberg, she would have progressed to her final leg in the journey. This was around 193 nautical miles to Ambrose Light, or the Ambrose Tower, which was the light station at the convergence of several major shipping lanes in lower New York Bay, including Ambrose Channel, which was the primary passage for ships entering and departing the port of New York and New Jersey. Then she was supposed to finally dock in New York Harbor. That's the brief rundown of the journey, and now let's get into some more detail. The first three days of the voyage from Queenstown were apparently without incident, though we do have to note that a fire had begun in Titanic's coal bunkers approximately 10 days before she left Southampton, as we stated earlier. This fire would continue to burn for several days into the voyage, though allegedly it was put out on April 14, 1912, the day she'd hit the iceberg. The passengers were not aware of this potentially dangerous situation, since it wasn't uncommon for fires to happen on steamships due to spontaneous combustion of the coal, which is astonishing to me. The way they had to put out the fires was to use fire hoses and moving the coal on top to another bunker. They'd take the burning coal and simply throw it in the furnace, which makes sense to me. Though there isn't proof, there's been much speculation, discussion, and research done into the effects of the fire and the attempts to extinguish it. It could have warped or weakened the steel plating and rivets of the Titanic, making her weaker to impact. After departure from Queenstown on April 11th to local apparent noon the next day, which is solar time and it's a calculation of the passage of time based upon the position of the sun in the sky, RMS Titanic steamed 484 nautical miles the following day, making 519 nautical miles of headway, and by noon on the final day of her voyage as we know it, 546 nautical miles. This is because she was constantly increasing speed, since J. Bruce Ismay wanted her to reach the harbor by Tuesday, and Captain Smith wanted the glory that came with it. Of course, these are based upon eyewitness account, so I'm going to take it with a grain of salt. I wasn't there to speak to them, so I can't fully say what their desires were. From this point until her sinking, she'd travel another 258 miles, and she averaged about 21 knots, though she would travel much faster and much slower than this at different points in the journey. Meanwhile, passengers were enjoying strolls on the deck, meals in the dining rooms, and all of the wonderful amenities Titanic had to offer. Since she'd cleared Ireland, the sky was cloudy with a headwind, but temperatures were still fairly mild up to Saturday, April 13th. 
but she'd crossed into a cold weather front on the 14th with strong winds and heavy seas, with waves up to eight feet high. It died down as the day progressed until the sea was as still as glass and the sky was clear and moonless on the evening of Sunday, April 14, 1912. That evening was extremely cold, with anyone daring to stroll the boat deck that time of night surely being bundled up and not staying out long. It was 50 degrees Fahrenheit at noon, but according to the Washington Post, it had dipped down to 33 degrees in the evening, dipping just below freezing by 10.30 p.m. that night. The water temperature of the ocean that night was 28 degrees Fahrenheit, which is lethal for any person. The ice conditions on the North Atlantic were the worst they'd been for April in 50 years up to that point, and so, of course, the crew of Titanic would hear about it. While out on the ocean, Titanic would receive six warnings about drifting ice in the area of the Great Banks of Newfoundland from multiple ships. However, they were ignored by Captain E.J. Smith. Hell, passengers of Titanic even saw ice during the afternoon of April 14th. One of the ships that warned Titanic was Atlantic Line's SS Maseba, built in 1897. Another of these ships was the ever-controversial SS Californian, a British Leyland Line steamer that was allegedly the only ship close enough to visibly see Titanic from their deck. However, the crew took no action to save the doomed ship's passengers and crew. We'll talk about that a bit later, but for now, back to Titanic. Titanic would continue full steam ahead, which seems reckless to those of us looking back, but it was commonplace at the time. She wasn't actively trying to set a speed record, however, timekeeping was a priority, and ships were pushed to continue at full speed ahead to keep good timing. Again, there is the alleged story that J. Bruce Ismay and Captain Smith were trying for speedy glory, but it isn't confirmed. Ice warnings weren't seen as death sentences, but advisories at the time, and reliance was placed in the hands of the lookouts and the watch on the bridge. We have to note that Titanic left her only pair of binoculars at the dock in Southampton, so her lookouts were at a disadvantage, especially in the dark on calm seas with no moon and going as fast as possible. Ice was seen as an inconvenience rather than a real danger for large vessels, though there had been some rare close calls, and even a few head-on collisions that weren't disastrous. In 1907, a German liner called the SS Kronprinz Wilhelm of the Norddeutscher Lloyd Line, which is now part of Hapag Lloyd, rammed an iceberg head-on but still completed her voyage with all of her watertight doors closed. And Captain E.J. Smith himself even said in 1907 that he, quote, could not imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. The sad, devastating irony in that statement cannot be understated. It has been said that if Titanic had struck the iceberg head-on instead of veering and sideswiping it, there was a possibility she could have survived, but we'll never know for sure. Alright everyone, we are at the point that everyone has been waiting for. Remember, there are a lot of details about this sinking available, some contradictory, and we aren't going to delve into everything, especially if I cannot confirm it with at least two primary or secondary sources. Feel free to add more details, corrections, and discussion in the comments, but keep it respectful of one another and myself. Again, no need to get angry with each other about a ship that sank 110 years ago and none of us were there to witness it or ask anyone about it. Okay, so the radio operators of Titanic, as we know, were employees of the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company and not crew members for Titanic, so they didn't relay every single message about ICE to the crew. Their primary objective was to send and receive messages for the passengers, and weather warnings, including ICE warnings, were secondary. 
There was a huge line of drifting ice several miles wide and many miles long that Titanic was steaming toward, and neither the radio operators nor the lookouts were aware or prepared for this. At 9 a.m., RMS Coronia of the Cunard Line, launched in 1904, reported seeing, quote, bergs, rattlers, and field ice in the area. Captain Smith acknowledged this, but took no immediate action. At 1.42 p.m., RMS Baltic, the third of White Star Line's Big Four, relayed a report they'd received from a Greek ship called Athenia that she'd been, quote, passing icebergs and large quantities of field ice. Again, Captain Smith acknowledged this warning, and this time he showed the report to J. Bruce Ismay, and Captain Smith would order a new course to be set, taking the ship farther south to hopefully avoid the ice. However, ice travels south, so this wasn't a good idea either. Three minutes later at 1.45 p.m., the Hamburg America Line ship SS America was a short distance to the south of Titanic and reported that she'd, quote, passed two large icebergs. This message would never make it to Captain Smith or the officers on Titanic's bridge. We don't know why, but it could be because at the time the radio operators were busy fixing faulty equipment and they were utterly swamped with personal messages from passengers. Infamously at 7.30 p.m., SS Californian would report, quote, three large bergs, and later at 10.40 p.m., SS Maseba reported the following, quote, saw much heavy pack ice and great number large icebergs, also field ice. Curiously enough, this message never left the radio room. Jack Phillips, who was operating at the time, is assumed to have been so overwhelmed with passenger messages via the relay station at Cape Race, Newfoundland, that he didn't get the message up to the captain. This was also because the radio set, as we said earlier, had broken the previous day, and the operators had to repair it, which meant a backlog of messages that the two operators were trying to plow through. I'm going to make an assumption here, don't take this as fact, but if I were Jack Phillips and I was swamped like that, I'd be thinking just one more message and then I'll deliver this ice warning to the bridge. And after multiple times thinking that, I'd forget about the ice warning altogether. I'm not saying that that's what happened in Jack Phillips' case, but that is what I theorize may have happened. Famously, one final warning would come in as Jack Phillips, filled with frustration, was trying to finish his backlog of messages. SS Californian gave one final message for Titanic at 10.30 p.m., stating they'd halted for the night for safety about 10 miles away from Titanic. But Phillips angrily cut him off and signaled back, quote, Shut up! Shut up! I'm working Cape Race! Since the ships were so close to one another, their messages back and forth would have been incredibly loud to their operators, and this probably just pushed Phillips over the edge. Not saying he was right for doing what he did, but it's understandable to a degree. To this, Cyril Evans, the operator aboard SS Californian, shrugged his shoulders and turned in for the night, leaving their wireless station off for the night. It wasn't required at the time to have 24-7 radio communications like it is now, and we sadly have the Titanic disaster to thank for this requirement. The crew, however, was still aware from previous warnings that there was ice in their vicinity, but they continued at 22 knots, only two knots shy of Titanic's maximum speed of 24 knots. Although later her speed in icy waters would be criticized and considered reckless, it was reflective of standard maritime practice in 1912. You didn't slow down. You had a schedule to keep, and that was more important than the potential of sinking due to ice. According to the fifth officer, Mr. Harold Lowe, the custom was to, quote, go ahead and depend upon the lookout in the crow's nest and the watch on the bridge to pick up the ice in time to avoid hitting it. 
As we know, that was a very bad idea, and many would pay the price for this. At the time that Titanic was approaching the collision, many passengers had already gone to bed for the night. The con was passed from 2nd Officer Lightoller to 1st Officer Murdoch, with the lookouts Frederick Fleet and Reginald Lee sitting in the crow's nest about 95 feet above the deck, shivering and squinting into the cold, calm night. One of the survivors of the disaster, Colonel Archibald Gracie, would go on to write that, quote, the sea was like glass, so smooth that the stars were clearly reflected. This makes it incredibly difficult to tell where the horizon is, and they didn't know what we know now, which is that incredibly smooth water like this is a sign of nearby pack ice. Drift ice, or brash ice, is sea ice that is not attached to the shoreline or any other fixed object, and it is therefore carried along by winds and sea currents. Pack ice is when all of this drift ice is driven together into a single mass. It was a moonless night and so there was very little light or anything to give indications of an iceberg in the calm, glass-like seas. Waves breaking against an iceberg makes it easier to see, but this just wasn't the case for Titanic's lookouts. Though the binoculars were left in Southampton, and this just makes life harder for the lookouts, there are some sources that claim the binoculars wouldn't have helped anyway because of the intense darkness other than the thin starlight and the light bouncing off the water from Titanic herself. Everyone was aware of the ice, since Lightoller had told everyone to, quote, keep a sharp lookout for ice, particularly small ice and growlers. I admire Lightoller for his heroism during the sinking and for warning the crew, but we do have to give Murdoch due credit. Some stories villainize him, even James Cameron's 1997 movie to a degree. He was an experienced seaman and made what he believed was the best decision. At 11.30 p.m., Fleet and Lee were squinting out into the ocean when they saw a slight haze on the horizon. They didn't make much of it, assuming it was nothing. According to some researchers, this was a mirage caused by the cold waters mixing with the warm air, causing an almost foggy haze. It's similar to a mirage of water in the desert when you look far ahead of you into the distance. It's believed this happened when Titanic entered what is called Iceberg Alley which is also the Atlantic marine ecozone that stretches from the Davis Strait to encompass the Grand Banks, to the Avalon Peninsula on the shores of Newfoundland. The mirage would have resulted in a perception of a raised horizon, which essentially blinded the lookouts from spotting anything far away from them, even if they had the binoculars. This is why it took nine more minutes at 11.39 p.m. for Fleet and Lee to spot the iceberg directly in the path of RMS Titanic and here the fate for the ship of dreams aligned. Fleet, being the first to spot it, immediately rang the lookout bell three times and used a telephone to, in the crow's nest to phone the bridge. Sixth officer James Moody picked up the phone and Fleet desperately asked, is there anyone there? To which Moody responded, yes, what do you see? Iceberg, right ahead, Fleet replied with anxiety in his voice. Moody thanked Fleet and quickly relayed this message to Murdoch, who immediately ordered Quartermaster Robert Hikins to change course. Murdoch, it is generally believed, gave the hard a starboard order, which would mean the ship's tiller moved all the way to the starboard side to turn to port. This may seem backward, but this was commonplace on British ships of this era. He also rang full astern on the ship's telegraphs, which rang down to the engine room. They rang theirs back and shifted to full astern. Murdoch's goal, according to 4th Officer Joseph Foxall, was the, quote, port-around maneuver. He told Captain Smith after the collision that he was trying to push the ship hard a port around the iceberg. This meant he was trying to do what Captain Scatino was attempting and failed with Costa Concordia, 
He was trying to first swing the bow around the iceberg and then the stern to keep the ship from hitting it at all. However, there was a delay before either order went into effect naturally because people aren't instantaneous, and it took up to 30 full agonizing seconds for the steam-powered steering mechanism to actually turn the tiller. There was also the complex task at that time of setting the engines into reverse that would have taken some time, no matter how fast the crews in the belly of Titanic worked. The center turbine could not be reversed, so this and the central propeller were stopped altogether, and they were positioned directly in front of the ship's rudder, which reduced the effectiveness of the rudder and her turning capabilities. If Murdoch had continued full steam ahead and tried this port-around maneuver, Titanic might have missed the iceberg by a few feet, but again, we'll never know. There's evidence supporting the fact that Murdoch might have simply just signaled the engine room to stop, not reversed, with lead fireman Frederick Barrett later testifying that the stoplight came on, but even that order couldn't be executed completely before disaster struck. Titanic narrowly avoided a head-on collision, however her starboard side scraped the side of the iceberg, rumbling and vibrating the entire ship for around seven seconds as a long, jagged underwater spear of ice cut into Titanic. The iceberg actually punctured the ship by buckling the plates and popping off her rivets, allowing an enormous gash about 300 feet in length, about 10 feet above the keel, to be torn into the ship, at least according to a writer at the time. According to a British inquiry following the disaster, the chief naval architect for Harlan and Wolfe, Edward Wilding, calculated the basis of the observed flooding of the forward compartments 40 minutes after the collision, and based upon these calculations, he testified that the area of the hull opened up by the iceberg was, quote, somewhere about 12 square feet, and he'd go on to say that, quote, I believe it must have been in places, not a continuous rip. This means that it was like a dotted line, opening here and there along the scrape, but not in one giant cut. The findings in the inquiry, which we will cover more extensively next week, state that this gash was over 300 feet, and the riders took this vague estimate and ran with it. Of course, with modern ultrasound surveys of the wreckage, it's been found that the actual total area was only about 12 to 13 square feet, which is close to what Wilding found. According to Paul K. Mathias, the man who actually did these measurements, the gash in the side of the ship was actually a, quote, series of deformations in the starboard side that start and stop along the hull, about 10 feet above the bottom of the ship. That means that the estimations back in 1912 were pretty damn accurate. The longest of the dotted rips in the hull measures roughly 39 feet, and according to research, they followed pretty closely to the line of the hull plating. Because of this, it's assumed that rivets popped off the line of this hull plating, and that's what allowed all of that water to spill in. The rivets in the plates along the stern and bow were held together with double rows of wrought iron rivets, which were potentially near their stress limits before the collision due to the fire we covered earlier, and the high slag content we covered last episode in the building of Titanic. However, we have to take this with a grain of salt, because Olympic was of the exact same construction, and she took part in numerous collisions and didn't sink. She even rammed and sank U-103 with her bow, and the worst thing that happened was the twisting of the stem and the hull plates on the starboard side being buckled, with the hull's integrity still intact. And she didn't sink, as we know from the first episode of this month. All of this evidence was pointed out by a retired archivist for Harlan Wolf named Tom McCluskey, and it's definitely something to take into consideration. We may never know exactly what caused Titanic's hull to cave in the way it did, since so many factors went into the sinking. 
chunks of ice fell from the iceberg onto the forward decks, making for a hefty souvenir for a short time for some of the gleeful, blissfully ignorant passengers. Roughly five minutes after impact, all of Titanic's engines were fully stopped, and this left her slowly drifting south in the Labrador current, facing north. She struck the berg at approximately 11.40 p.m., and she'd be under the water by 2.20 a.m. on April 15, 1912. Above the waterline in the first-class dining saloon, there was little evidence that there might have been a collision. The stewards noticed a shudder, and they assumed the ship might have lost her propeller, some betting they'd be heading back to Belfast. Many surviving passengers in all three classes claimed to have felt at least a bump or shudder, one simply stating it felt, quote, just as though we went over about a thousand marbles. None of them knew what had happened at this point, and they really wouldn't until it was too late. On the lower decks, which were closer to the site of impact, you'd feel it a lot more. An engine oiler named Walter Hurst said he was, quote, awakened by a grinding crash along the starboard side. No one was very much alarmed, but we knew we had struck something. According to fireman George Kemish, he heard a, quote, heavy thud and grinding tear sound from the starboard hull. That would be a lot more concerning than a slight vibration or shuddering, which is what everyone on the upper decks felt. At an estimated rate of roughly seven long tons per second, water flooded into Titanic, which is unfortunately 15 times faster than the pumps of 1912 could pump the water back out. Leading stoker Frederick Barrett and second engineer J.H. Hesketh were hit by a jet spray of icy Atlantic water in the number six boiler room and managed to escape just before the room's watertight door closed. I cannot stress the following enough. The seawater, which was below freezing, was incredibly dangerous for the engineering crew since the boilers were full of hot, high-pressure steam. If that cold water came in contact with those hot boilers, there could be a massive explosion. Immediately, the stokers and firemen were ordered to reduce the fires and vent the boilers up through the funnel venting pipes to release the pressure. And by the time they finished, they were up to their waists in freezing water. On the boat deck, the sound of steam hissing out of the funnels was deafening. From last episode, we know about Titanic's 16 watertight compartments separated by a bulkhead, each rising at least 11 feet above the waterline, and the two nearest the bow and six closest to the stern going one deck further up, though they weren't sealed at the top. Titanic's watertight doors took 30 seconds to close, with warning bells and alternative escape routes provided to the crew in case they were trapped. To close these walkways off, on the Orlop deck, F deck, and E deck, the doors closed horizontally and were manually operated, and they could be closed either at the door itself or from the safety of the deck above it. She could remain afloat with four on one side flooded. Unfortunately, six were breached. And so like water flowing from one compartment in an ice cube tray to the next, it would continue to flood until she foundered. She'd suffered damage to her four-peak tank, the three forward holds, number six boiler room, and part of the number five boiler room. She was doomed, but no one knew it yet. Captain Smith was shaken awake in his cabin by the impact, and surely some expletives went through his head, as they would have mine. Immediately, he dressed himself and sped up to the bridge to assess the situation. And once he'd heard what had happened, he called upon Thomas Andrews, the man who knew RMS Titanic the best. The ship was already listing 5 degrees to the starboard side and 2 degrees down by the head, meaning her bow was dipping 2 degrees, within the first few minutes after the collision. Thomas Andrews and Captain E.J. Smith went below decks to investigate the damage, and they found the forward cargo holds, the mail room, and the squash court were completely flooded, with water already spilling forward from there. 
The number six boiler room was filled up to a depth of 14 feet already, and water was spilling over the bulkhead into the number five boiler room. There, the crewmen were fighting to the death to pump the water out. The two men, surely pale by the sickening sight, retreated back up to the bridge. After 45 minutes, Titanic had already taken on at least 13,500 long tons of icy seawater, and it was more than her ballast and bilge pumps could take. The total pumping capacity of all of her pumps combined was only 1,700 long tons per hour, and so there was no way they could catch up. All they could do was buy time, and buy time the engineering crew would. Thomas Andrews did the calculations and informed Captain Smith that the first five compartments were completely flooded, and so Titanic would sink. There was nothing that could be done. According to his calculations, she'd stay afloat for no longer than about two hours from the time he broke the news, and he was pretty much right on the money. I don't know about you guys, but I feel so sad right now. At this point, only you, me, Captain Smith, and Thomas Andrews know Titanic is sinking. All of the other victims have no idea tonight will be their last. From the time she struck the iceberg to her final second afloat, at least 35,000 long tons, if not more, of water flooded into the beautiful ocean liner. This doubled her displacement from 48,300 long tons to well over 83,000 long tons. That is insane. It wasn't at a constant pace, flooding rapidly at times and slowly at others. The distribution of the flooding was uneven as well because of the configuration of her compartments as they flooded with the listing first beginning on the starboard side as that side flooded first. After the flooded passageway at the bottom of the ship completed, the listing evened out for a short time, before the ship began to list to the port side up to 10 degrees as that side began to asymmetrically flood. Rapidly, the bow of Titanic would dip toward the water by 4.5 degrees in the first hour of the sinking, which doesn't seem like much, but that is alarming. After this, the rate that the ship dipped forward slowed to, down to a crawl, and it was only down to about 5 degrees in the second hour. This made the passengers believe that there was a possibility the ship wasn't going to sink. This breaks my heart. They had false hope, and it would be dashed at 1.30am on April 15, 1912, as the bow dipped down 10 degrees all of a sudden, and rapidly the ship began to angle further and further down into the water. By 2.15 a.m., five minutes before she disappeared forever, she angled the quickest as water poured into the last bits of the unflooded rooms in the ship. As for the evacuation, we all know that it was far from perfect, and in hindsight being 2020, we'd all go back and change it, knowing what we know now. However, Captain Smith felt it was paramount that there be no panic, and so the stewards were instructed to rouse the passengers but not give them any details as to what was going on. At 12.05 a.m. on April 15th, Captain Smith ordered the crew to prepare the ship's lifeboats, uncovering them and swinging them out. He also ordered the stewards to rouse the passengers and have them don their life belts. At this point, passengers were already stirring, curious as to why the engines that had been purring constantly and lulling them to sleep were now stopped. Captain Smith told the radio operators to get distress signals out, though he wrongly told them their position was on the west side of the ice belt and directed any rescue ships to a position about 13.5 nautical miles away from where they really were. Here's where SS Californian comes in. She was allegedly close enough to see RMS Titanic from where they were stopped, but the radio operator had gone to bed. According to Walter Lord's book, A Night to Remember, they had signaled to Titanic with their Morse lamp on the deck of the ship, but Titanic either didn't see it or know how to respond. They would have been close enough to see the distress rockets, but they didn't react. 
Both inquiries into the sinking found that SS Californian could have saved many lives had they reacted, and so the inaction of the crew and their captain Stanley Lord were declared reprehensible. We do have to note that in 1992, the UK government's Marine Accident Investigation Branch re-examined the case, concluded that due to the limited time available, the effect of Californian taking proper action would have been no more than to place on her the task actually carried out by Carpathia, that is the rescue of those who escaped. No reasonably probable action by Captain Lord could have led to a different outcome of the tragedy. SS Californian would be sunk on November 9, 1915 by SMU-34 and U-35 during World War I. I'm no expert and I have not re-examined the case myself, but from my point of view, I would have to sorely disagree. However, we'll never know. Deep in the heart of Titanic, water was steadily coming in. The mail room was beginning to flood, and so the mail sorters tried their best to save 400,000 parcels on Titanic, but it was no use. Somewhere else, deep in the belly of the ship, air was hissing as it was being forced out by water rushing in, and above the mail room, stewards could be heard going door to door, waking the passengers and crew, and urging them to head to the boat deck. At this time, there was no PA system to get a message out quickly, so it was up to the fleet of stewards and stewardesses. At about 12.15 a.m., the stewards began their rounds to wake the passengers. If you were in first class, you could expect your steward or stewardess to not only wake you, but assist you in putting on your life belt and to get dressed, and even escorting you and assisting you with your children to the boat deck. These stewards and stewardesses didn't have as many people to care for, so their attention could be entirely devoted to you. The stewards in the second class would rouse you by knocking on your door, telling you to don your life belt, and to get to the boat deck with little to no explanation. But it was much better than if you were in the third class. There was a higher volume of people for these stewards, so you were lucky if there was shouting to put on your life belt and a bang on the door. But good luck getting any sort of explanation. And if you didn't speak English, you were unlikely to know what's going on. Much of the third class was roused simply by the ruckus going on around them and figured it out from other passengers, so it wasn't very well organized the further you went down into the ship if you were a passenger. Not only was the spread of information spotty, but many passengers and crew were hesitant to come up on deck. They believed they were safer on the mass of Titanic rather than tiny little boats, and it was cold outside. They'd rather stay in their warm beds. If you were a passenger, you were told it was a drill or just a precaution, but you didn't know it was sinking. If you were keen enough, you might have noticed a list like a few of the other passengers around you. Imagine you're standing on the deck, looking around at the scene. Officers and crewmen are readying lifeboats and discussing with one another in hushed tones. Other passengers stand around near you, shivering and rubbing their arms with their palms, and stewards assist the first-class passengers up onto the deck. Some of the other passengers have started an impromptu game of association football, known as football or soccer in America, with the ice on deck and seem to be having a grand time. It's hard to hear anything because of the loud, low-toned hissing of high-pressure steam coming from the funnels from the boilers. A fellow passenger, Lawrence Beasley, described the sound as, quote, a harsh, deafening boom that made conversation difficult. If one imagines 20 locomotives blowing off steam in a low key, it would give some idea of the unpleasant sound that met us as we climbed out on the top deck. You look over and see crew using hand signals with one another since it's impossible for them to communicate otherwise. There's a total of 20 lifeboats, as we covered last episode, with eight regular lifeboats on each side as well as four collapsibles. 
This can accommodate 1,178 passengers, which is just barely half of the amount of passengers around you. As we know from last episode, they never planned on using the lifeboats to hold the entirety of the population on the ship, but merely to ferry the passengers from the sinking vessel to the rescue vessel, which would surely be her soon, right? Wrong. While you stand on deck in the cold, shivering and wondering what's going on, Captain Smith is dealing with his own nightmare on the bridge. If you didn't know, Captain Smith was an incredibly experienced seaman at this point in his life, and he'd already served 40 years at sea, which included 27 years in command. This was the first deadly crisis of his career, since the collision of RMS Olympic and HMS Hawk wasn't this serious. He knew that even if all of the boats were completely full, well over a thousand people, including himself, would more than likely die. There's two scenarios for how he acted after all of this sank in. According to several sources after the sinking, in one scenario you'd see Captain Smith on deck, but he would seem rigid and indecisive, his face pale and eyes glued to the water with a sense of impending doom. He'd be paralyzed with fear to the point of indecision, privately or publicly having some sort of nervous breakdown, and being lost in a trance-like state that left him pretty much useless to the rescue effort or the mitigation of the loss of life that was about to take place. We saw this interpretation in James Cameron's Titanic film. However, the other passengers around you swear they saw Captain Smith entirely differently. He was cool and calm, taking charge of the evacuation. He'd immediately investigated the disaster as soon as the collision took place, taking two personal trips down below decks, and allegedly ordering passengers to have their life belts on and to be up on deck even before Thomas Andrews informed him the ship was doomed. You and the other passengers might have seen Captain Smith with his shoulders back and hands neatly folded behind his back as he strolled up and down the decks, personally overseeing and assisting with the loading and lowering away of the lifeboats. He was talking with passengers, sternly enforcing the evacuation orders, and insisting there be urgency with no panic. We'll never really know since all of our evidence is he said, she said, so it's up for interpretation. My personal belief is that of most researchers, which is that Captain Smith was understandably riddled with crippling anxiety and guilt that he couldn't deal with, but that is just my stance on it. Not everyone on the crew was prepared for the evacuation or even knew the gravity of the emergency. According to 4th Officer Joseph Boxall, around 12.25 a.m., Captain Smith told him the ship was sinking. But Quartermaster George Rowe didn't get the news, and he actually phoned the bridge from his watch station when he saw a lifeboat row pass to ask what was going on. Everyone was unprepared for the emergency, but that's even scarier when the crew is unprepared. Lifeboat training was extremely minimal, with the only training that happened before the sinking was a drill, if you could call it that, while the ship was docked in Southampton. It was just two boats being lowered, each with one officer and four men in it, and they just rode around the dock for a few minutes before returning to Titanic. There was actually a lifeboat drill scheduled for the morning of Sunday, April 14, 1912, but for unknown reasons, Captain Smith canceled it. Other than the wimpy lifeboat drill in Southampton, none had been done, and certainly not with the passengers. The lifeboats were supposed to be loaded with provisions, but much to the shock of the passengers, they were scarcely stocked with anything even though the ship's chief baker, Charles Yoffin, and his staff had attempted to fully stock them with hot, fresh bread and other goods. That would be disconcerting, to say the least. The crew could have been prepared. 
You might be saying, Eleanor, we know that. And believe me, it seems like there's a million reasons why they should have been. But let me give reason number one million and one. There were lists posted in cruise areas on the Titanic that detailed which crew members were assigned to which lifeboat muster stations. But of course, with everything going wrong in this story, we have to add something else. It seems that very few, if any of the crew actually paid any attention to these lists or knew what they were supposed to do. It doesn't help that most of the crew were not seamen, and some didn't even know how to row a boat before the evening of April 15th. And now these regular Joes, who didn't even know which lifeboat they were supposed to tend to, had the impossible task of organizing the escape of 1,100 people 70 feet down the side of the ship to the water. A historian of the disaster, Thomas E. Bonsall, has stated that the evacuation was so poorly organized that, quote, even if they had the number of lifeboats they needed, it is impossible to see how they could have launched them. And this has given the poor leadership, the slow start almost an hour after the collision before the first boat even hit the water, and the inexperience of the crew. Not all of the lifeboats on Titanic would even be successfully launched before she went under, though most were. Despite all of these factors, at around 12.20 a.m., 40 minutes after we've struck the iceberg, the officers and crew around you are loading the lifeboats, granted not to capacity. Just before this, you look over while steam is still venting so loudly around you, and you see second officer Lightoller cup his hands around his mouth over Captain Smith's ear, and he appears to be shouting. You can't hear him, but he recalled it like this. Quote, I yelled at the top of my voice. Hadn't we better get the women and children into the boat, sir? He heard me and nodded reply. You see, Captain Smith nod, and he orders First Officer Murdoch and Second Officer Lightoller to, quote, put the women and children in and lower away. This had two interpretations for the officers. Murdoch thought of it as women and children first, then fill the lifeboat with whoever was standing around regardless of gender. Lightoller, on the other hand, took it as women and children only, and he'd be damned if any man snuck onto his boats. He'd literally pull them out and send the lifeboat partially empty if there were no other women and children waiting. Neither officer was aware of the 68-person capacity of these boats, and they were afraid of filling them completely just in case. However, it was safe enough to do so given the capacity of the boats and the preferable sea conditions and clear weather. If this had been done, 500 more people would have been saved. But instead, people stood on the boat deck, mostly men, as they watched lifeboat after lifeboat leave with empty seats. Needless to say, if you were a man, you'd best head to the starboard side of the ship. If you're a woman, you're safe on either side. So we're going into the lifeboat launchings. For a personal project in the past, I made a lovely little timetable and I'll put it on the screen for everyone on YouTube. For everyone listening on an audio-only format, don't worry, I will verbalize it for you. This is a table of all of the lifeboats launched on the starboard and port sides in chronological order because that is how I like to receive my information. I took all of this information from Titanic, True Stories of Her Passengers, Crew, and Legacy by Nicola Pierce, but reorganized it to be Eleanor friendly. The first few lifeboats were all on the starboard side, where Mr. Murdoch was in charge. Lifeboat 7 was launched at 12.40 a.m. with either 28 or 29 survivors. Sources differ on the exact number. The next lifeboat to leave, also on the starboard side, was lifeboat 5 at 12.43 a.m. with either 35 or 36 passengers. After this, at 12.55 a.m., lifeboat 3 lowered into the water with between 32 to 50 passengers. After this, two lifeboats would leave simultaneously at 1 a.m. 
On the port side, under the gaze of Lightoller, Lifeboat 8 left Titanic with either 27 or 28 survivors. And on Murdoch's watch, over on the starboard side of the ship, Lifeboat 1 left with only 12 people in it. Remember that these boats should have held 68 people each, so that is pathetic. At 1.10 a.m. on the port side, Lifeboat 6 lowered away with 58 survivors on board. And the only man that Lightoller allowed onto his boats, Royal Canadian Yacht Club member Major Arthur Godfrey Puchin. And he was to be in charge of this lifeboat since there wasn't a seaman on it. On the starboard side at 1.20 a.m., Lifeboat 16 lowered into the Atlantic Ocean with 50 survivors. On the port side at 1.25 a.m., Lifeboat 14 lowered into the sea with 58 passengers aboard, all women and children. Again at 1.30 a.m., we had two lifeboats lower away at the same time on either side of the ship. Under Mr. Lightoller's watch, on the port side was lifeboat 12 with 30 survivors. And on the starboard side, under Mr. Murdoch's purview, was lifeboat 9 with between 30 and 40 survivors. Lifeboat 11 lowered into the ocean at 1.35 a.m. on the starboard side with between 50 and 70 survivors on board, making it one of the fullest lifeboats launched. At 1.40 a.m., lifeboat 14 on the starboard side lowered away with 65 survivors on board. Now we are going to be on the port side of the ship until 2 a.m. Titanic was under the water at 2.20 a.m., so these lifeboats are going to be launched more rapidly and with more people in them. On the port side, lifeboat 15 lowered away at 1.41 a.m. with 65 people loaded into it, and it was almost lowered directly onto lifeboat 13 as it passed under them. The next boat in the port side to lower away was at 1.45 a.m., and it was Lifeboat 2, and it only had 17 people in it. I just cannot believe that. Lifeboat 4 and Lifeboat 10 both lowered away at 1.50 a.m., since things were really heating up and getting bad on Titanic at this point. Lifeboat 4 had between 55 and 65 survivors, and Lifeboat 10 had an unknown number of people aboard. We returned to the starboard side in the last 20 minutes of Titanic remaining afloat. The collapsible lifeboats were being removed from atop the officers' quarters, all of them successfully except for Collapsible B, which fell from the roof of the officers' quarters onto the wrong side, and drifted away after the ship sank. At 2 a.m. on the starboard side, Collapsible C was launched with between 35 and 40 passengers. At 2.05 a.m., Collapsible D on the port side was launched with between 25 and 30 survivors. Back on Mr. Murdoch's half of the ship, our final lifeboat for the starboard side was launched at 2.15 a.m., five minutes before Titanic foundered, and it was Collapsible A with 10 to 12 survivors on board. Finally, as Titanic disappeared under the waves, Collapsible B floated away from the ship. Lightoller and other survivors would cling to this lifeboat until they were rescued when the other lifeboats, which had roads roughly 100 to 200 yards away. Lifeboats 8, 3, and 6 were a bit farther away since they were rowing toward the lights of the Californian that could be seen off in the distance. It's been estimated Californian was about 10 miles away, but that is unconfirmed. While lifeboats were being launched, there were things happening inside the ship. Remember how I told you there weren't many seamen aboard Titanic and so yachtsman Arthur Puchin took charge of lifeboat 6? Well, the amount of seamen was decreased around that time because some of them were sent below to open the gangway doors to allow more passengers to escape, but they never came back. It's assumed they were trapped and drowned by the water rising up from the decks below. The devastation didn't stop there. 
While the crew on the boat deck worked hard to evacuate the women and children, the engineers and firemen worked hard to vent steam from the boilers to prevent an explosion, opening watertight doors to set up extra portable pumps in the flooded forward compartments to slow the immense flooding, and keeping the electrical generators running as long as possible to keep the lights on for everyone, since it was such a dark, cold, moonless night, and they wanted to prevent as much panic as possible. An engineer named Jonathan Shepard fell into a manhole and broke his leg during the disaster. And a few minutes after this, him and another engineer, Herbert Harvey, died in boiler room number five around 12.45 a.m. when the bunker door that separated boiler rooms number five and six collapsed. And they'd be swept away by what leading fireman Frederick Barrett described as, quote, a wave of green foam. Barrett had barely escaped joining the two engineers. According to trimmer George Cavill, who survived the sinking, Around 1.20 a.m. in boiler room number four, water started to bubble up from the metal floor plates beneath them. And this could possibly mean there was a breach in the bottom of the ship too, but that's not confirmed. The water rushing in overwhelmed the pumps and seeing there was nothing to do about it, the firemen and trimmers retreated from this boiler room, moving further aft. The ultimate sacrifice was made by multiple of these men, Chief Engineer Joseph Bell, all of his engineering colleagues and a handful of greasers and firemen all volunteered to stay behind in the number one, two, and three boiler rooms that were not yet flooded to keep the power going to the ship's pumps so they could delay the sinking, even if just for a few minutes, as well as keeping the lights on for the passengers and enough power to keep the radio room operational to flag down a rescue vessel. None of these men survived, and they sacrificed themselves willingly to save the lives of others. There are numerous sources stating they died in the belly of the ship, staying at their posts until the bitter end, whereas other sources state that when the water became too unmanageable for the pumps, the men escaped to the open well deck to see there were no lifeboats left. These same sources also state that once they were on deck, a group of eight of the 35 engineers gathered at the aft end of the starboard boat deck to await the bitter end together. None of the 35 electricians and engineers survived the sinking of Titanic. The five postal clerks working on Titanic also perished, with witnesses last seeing them trying to save mailbags they'd taken from the flooded mailroom. They were trapped by rising water on D-deck somewhere, and that is where they drowned. If you happened to be a third-class passenger, then you might have been one of the many that saw water pouring into your stateroom on E, F, and G decks. You might run back to your stateroom for a warm jacket before going up to the boat deck, only to find yourself up to your ankles in freezing cold water. Not a pleasant sight to see on a ship that is supposed to be unsinkable. Let's get back to the boat deck. At about 1.20 a.m., you and the other passengers around you will start to notice how serious the situation really is. You look around and see husbands and wives giving each other tearful goodbyes, the men trying to feign a brave face as they escort their wives and children to the lifeboats before standing back, looking on with glassy eyes as the boats lowered away and they gravely realized their predicament. Above you, you hear the distress rockets pop as white smoke and sparkles light up the sky. Other passengers around you are distracted by them too, despite the danger at hand. While this is going on, Harold Bride and Jack Phillips are busy sending out the distress signal CQD. CQD was one of the first distress signals adopted for radio use, first being issued on February 1st, 1904. Bride looked to Phillips and suggested to use a newly issued signal that had never been used before, but is synonymous with emergency situations nowadays, SOS. He said it, quote, may be your last chance to send it. Immediately, they sent out the signal as well, and luckily a guardian angel responded. 
RMS Carpathia of the Cunard Line, 58 miles away, was the closest ship to respond, though many others did and changed course for Titanic, one of which was SS Mount Temple, though she was stopped by pack ice. We have an episode on Carpathia from last year, and I'll leave a link to it in the cards. Even though Captain Rostrum of Carpathia would order more stokers for the boilers bringing her up to the fastest speed she'd ever gone at 17 knots, it would still take her four hours to reach Titanic's position, and by that time, she'd be long gone and over a thousand would be dead. As we know, SS Californian was extremely close and had stopped for the evening due to ice. On her bridge, her third officer, Charles Groves, could see the Titanic about 10 to 12 miles away off the starboard side of the ship. A little over an hour later, 2nd Officer Herbert Stone saw five white rockets popping over Titanic, and he was immediately concerned and called upon Captain Stanley Lord, who didn't act upon the report. Stone would later state that he was perturbed, saying to a colleague, quote, a ship is not going to fire rockets at sea for nothing. He was right. While you and the other passengers are now fully aware of the situation, fearful women cling to their husbands and beg for them to be allowed on the lifeboats with them, to which the officers and Captain Smith himself would continue to push for women and children to be saved first. Eloise Hughes Smith was one of these women who wanted her husband Lucian to be saved with her and pleaded with Captain Smith, but he simply ignored her, shouting through his megaphone that women and children were to board first and to board now. Lucian would say to the captain, quote, Never mind, Captain, about that. I will see that she gets in the boat. After this, he turned to Eloise, surely terrified for himself, but suppressing the sphere, and he said to her, quote, I never expected to ask you to obey, but this is one time you must. It is only a matter of form to have women and children first. The ship is thoroughly equipped, and everyone on her will be saved. Eloise obeyed, and she never saw Lucian again. When I told Derek about this, he told me he'd do the exact same thing to ensure my safety, and that just made it hit home. It's so tragic. There were many instances of goodbyes such as this, or some that were much harder. In the case of Charlotte Lottie Collier and her husband Harvey, he shouted to his frantic wife as she was loaded into a lifeboat, yelling over the confusion, quote, Go Lottie, for God's sake, be brave and go. I'll get a seat in another boat. He wouldn't, and she'd become a widow as would many women that night. Some couples refused to be separated, like Ida Strauss and Isidore Strauss, the latter of which was the Macy's department store co-owner and a former member of the United States House of Representatives. They sat together in deck chairs and went down together. Benjamin Guggenheim actually changed out of his life belt, instead getting into a sweater, top hat, and evening attire, declaring he was going to go down like a gentleman, and he did. By this desperate point in the sinking, almost everyone on the lifeboat so far is first and second class, and very few third-class passengers had come up to the boat deck by this point. Many were trapped in the corridors below decks or behind gates and partitions that separated the classes. The segregation wasn't just a social thing, though. The United States actually required this because they wanted to control immigration and prevent the spread of infectious diseases before the third class was to disembark in New York. First and second class passengers were to disembark at the main piers on Manhattan Island. However, the third class would be required to go through Ellis Island to pass health checks and undergo processing. There's been evidence, sadly, that the crew hindered the ability of the third class passengers to escape, and that could have doomed many of them. The third class had to climb winding staircases that snaked up all over the ship to reach the boat deck, which was the furthest from the third class that was kept in the fore and aft sections of the ship. 
Not only this, but there was a significant number of these immigrants who couldn't speak or understand English, so it only added to the panic and confusion below decks. Most of the third class that survived were English-speaking Irish immigrants because of this fact. Many of these people were saved by third-class steward John Edward Hart, who organized three trips into the ship's interior to guide groups of passengers up to the lifeboats, with those who weren't part of these groups just climbing emergency ladders or finding open gates to get through. Sadly, some didn't even try to escape, either retiring to their staterooms to await death there or gathering in a large group in the third-class dining room, praying up until the end. Leading fireman Charles Hendrickson was escaping himself when he looked into the third-class area of the ship and saw many confused passengers with their possessions, awaiting further instructions that would never come. This has been described as stoic passivity, caused by generations of being told what to do by their social superiors, according to psychologist Wynne Craig Wade. By 1.30, Titanic's downward list increased to 5 degrees, and the listing to port increased as that side of the ship began to flood with water. The messages leaving the radio room became more and more desperate, with the last intelligible message sent from Titanic being at 1.45 a.m., and it states, quote, Engine room full up to the boilers. The messages that followed were jumbled and scrambled, but the radio operators still tried their damnedest to continue communicating almost up until the very end. Panic first broke out on the boat deck when a group of male passengers, scared for their lives, rushed lifeboat 14 as it was being lowered. Fifth Officer Lowe was in charge of this boat, and he discharged three shots from a pistol into the air to control the crowd. No one was injured from the gunfire. On board this lifeboat was Violet Jessup, and we'll see her again in the sinking of HMHS Britannic at the end of the month. Our most controversial survivor, J. Bruce Ismay, boarded Collapsible Sea as it was lowered into the sea around 2 a.m., though some sources state it was around 1.40 a.m. He would later be condemned as a coward, a characteristic still stuck to him to this day. There's evidence pointing in both directions, so it's hard to say whether or not this choice was out of cowardice. After the last lifeboat was successfully launched, the forecastle was already well underwater. There was a lot of confusion and fear, and many witnesses claimed to have seen an officer shoot two men with a revolver as they dove for the safety of a lifeboat, before turning the gun on himself. It's always been heavily rumored that this officer was actually Officer Murdoch, even making it into James Cameron's film, though this isn't confirmed and should not be taken as fact. After Captain Smith made one final tour of the deck, filled with scared passengers scrambling for the stern, and at this point, if you're still on board, you might be one of them, Captain Smith turned to the remaining crew and the radio operators, stating, quote, Now it's every man for himself. He told the men attempting to launch Collapsible A, well, boys, do your best for the women and children, and look out for yourselves. After this, he was seen returning to the bridge before it was swallowed by the sea. It's always been thought that he chose to go down with his ship, as was custom at the time, and died there at the bridge. But it is possible he jumped overboard from the bridge and died in the water. Harold Bride claims to have seen Captain Smith jumping from the bridge even, but we will never know that for sure. What we do know, for sure, is the last time anyone saw Thomas Andrews, he was in the first-class smoking room around 2.05, and he made no attempt to save himself. There's also reports of seeing him before this helping with the evacuation, and even opening the kennels to free the dogs housed there. He was reportedly seen throwing deck chairs into the sea for passengers to use, and some even state they saw him jump from the bridge with Captain Smith, if he truly left. We'll never know the truth, since there's so much conflicting information.
As you and the other frightened passengers scrambled for the stern, some of you may have had a confession heard by or an absolution given to by second-class passenger Father Thomas Biles as Titanic's band continued to play outside the gymnasium. There were actually two bands on board Titanic, the most famous of which was the quintet led by Wallace Hartley that played after dinner and at religious services, while the other band was a trio and they played in the reception area outside the cafe and restaurant. These two bands had separate music arrangements and libraries, and they had never played together until the night of the sinking. There is a huge piece of folklore in the Titanic sinking that the last song the musicians played as Titanic began her final descent was Nearer My God to Thee. However, this cannot be verified. The claim came from some of the earliest reports of the sinking, and the hymn has become synonymous with the sinking of the Ship of Dreams, so much so that the opening bars of the hymn were carved into the grave monument for Wallace Hartley, who perished that night. You and many passengers might have seen the band playing up until the deck was too steep for them to stand, with several other witnesses corroborating this. At 2.15 a.m., you've struggled to the stern and you look down as the angle of Titanic sinking rapidly increases with water pouring quickly into the previously unflooded parts of the ship. The sudden lurch caused what was called a, quote, giant wave by one survivor that swept along the ship from the bow back to the boat deck, sweeping people into the icy Atlantic. Collapsibles A and B were swept into the sea at this time. As the ship went down, Charles Lightoller, who was trying to launch Collapsible B, dove into the sea from the roof of the officer's quarters. He would be sucked up into the mouth of a ventilation shaft, but was thankfully saved by what he described as, quote, a terrific blast of hot air, and emerged next to capsized a Collapsible B. The forward funnel would then collapse, and it just narrowly missed Lightoller, creating a massive wave that sent the boat 50 yards clear of the ship. As the time ticked down, the stern rose higher into the air and the ship aimed downward, creaking and groaning under the immense pressure. Supposedly, it reached an angle of 30 to 45 degrees. At this point, you and the other passengers hear an enormous crash, loud like a massive explosion. Some attribute this to the boilers exploding, and this is when Titanic actually cracked in half because of the pressure of the stern in the air and the bow being sucked down into the sea. It snapped at the weakest point in the structure, right at the engine room hatch, and the lights went out just before she snapped, the stern falling back into the sea and crushing anyone underneath it. You're clinging to the railing of the stern as the forward end of it begins to rapidly flood, with just a tinge of that fragmented bow remaining attached to pull her under as the stern settled and filled with water, listing all the way to port and going completely vertical before disappearing into a flurry of bubbles at 2.20 a.m., two hours and 40 minutes after she hit the iceberg. Now, Titanic is gone, and you and many other passengers are left terrified and screaming for help in the water. It would be so cold that some would die immediately from shock. If you didn't die from the shock, the shock would be over after about 90 seconds. You'd have about 10 minutes before your extremities would be numb and entirely useless, and you'd die after about a half an hour to an hour of exposure, unless you were incredibly lucky. Remember, you now have to swim to the lifeboats, and they are about 100 to 200 yards away. As for Titanic, it would take about 5 to 6 minutes for her to tumble 12,451 feet down to the bottom of the ocean, the two parts of the ship landing about 2,000 feet apart from one another. She wouldn't be discovered until 1985 when Robert Ballard found her. As for the passengers, it was just the beginning of the next phase of a horrible nightmare that some would never wake from. That is the end of our episode on the sinking. We'll cover what happened to the passengers, the impact on society, and the inquiries in the next episode.
I hope this has done some semblance of justice for the passengers and crew of Titanic. May they rest in peace. Okay, everyone, we pick up where we left off. You and the other passengers and crew are now in the icy Atlantic Ocean. Remember, the air temperature was right around freezing and the water was 28 degrees Fahrenheit. Very cold. Around you are debris from the once beautiful ocean liner, which was floating just hours ago. Chairs furnishing from the walls, tables, doors, timber beams, chunks of cork from the bulkheads, and lots of smaller debris like blankets, clothes, and other trinkets. Some of these items rocketed up from the ship as she was sinking, injuring or killing others around you, while others used this to try and stay afloat. You might still be in a state of shock, but around you are hundreds of people crying, praying, begging for mercy, and screaming. It's so loud. It's as loud as a sports stadium, with the splashing, screaming, crying, and unmistakable sound of drowning and death. The cold temperature of the sea was lethal, with Charles Lytoller describing the feeling of this cold water like, quote, a thousand knives being driven into the skin. Being immersed in freezing water like this can cause a few things, one of which is almost immediate death, or at least within a few minutes, from either uncontrollable breathing of water from the gasp reflex, cardiac arrest, or cold shock, which is different than hypothermia. Cold shock response is a series of neurogenic cardiorespiratory responses caused by a sudden immersion in cold water, and it is the most common cause of death in cold water like this. Hypothermia is defined as a body core temperature below 95 degrees Fahrenheit in humans, and it happens more gradually. It has two main causes, exposure to cold weather on dry land and cold water immersion. Symptoms of hypothermia depend upon the temperature. When a person dies from hypothermia, they typically perform what is called terminal burrowing, or hide-and-die syndrome, where the victim will enter a small enclosed space to pass away in their sleep. This wasn't the case for the victims of Titanic, most of which would die within the first 15 to 30 minutes due to the extreme cold. Of all of the people in the water, only 13 were rescued by the lifeboats despite the fact that there were enough seats for 500 more people, and hopefully you're one of them. If you're one of the lucky few who made it into a lifeboat, you had the unpleasant experience of hearing what survivor Lawrence Beasley called, quote, every possible emotion of human fear, despair, agony, fierce resentment, and blind anger mingled. I'm certain of those, with notes of infinite surprise, as though each one were saying, how is it possible that this awful thing is happening to me, that I should be caught in this death trap? Honestly, I think Mr. Beasley hit the nail on the head with that one. I could definitely see that being the honest experience of everyone in the water, and I could see myself thinking the exact same thoughts. Jack Thayer, a first-class passenger who survived the sinking, compared it to the sound of locusts on a summer night, though I wouldn't know that sound since I don't live in an area where locusts are common. Quote, a dismal moaning sound which I won't ever forget. It came from those poor people who were floating around calling for help. It was horrifying, mysterious, supernatural, is how George Reams described it. This horrifying sound was a shocking, traumatizing experience for those in the lifeboats who felt helpless to do anything about it, especially since many at the time had believed everyone was able to safely escape. This was their first moment realizing not everyone was to be saved. Among the few in the water who survived were Charles Lytoller, Jack Thayer, and Archibald Greasy, all three of whom had managed to make it to Collapsible B. Twelve crew had made it to Collapsible B and were trying to help the 35 men clinging to the side of the overturned boat. 
They realized quickly that they could be swamped by the scared, desperate mass of people, and so they paddled away slowly, ignoring the pleas of many. Colonel Archibald Gracie would later write about the experience, recalling turning away many, many swimmers. He would write about them with admiration, stating, quote, In no instance, I am happy to say, did I hear any word of rebuke from a swimmer because of a refusal to grant assistance. One refusal was met with the manly voice of a powerful man. All right, boys, good luck and God bless you. According to Colonel Gracie, rumor has it that this man could have possibly been Captain Smith. Other men aboard Collapsible B stated as such, including Stoker Harry Sr. and entree cook Isaac Maynard stating Smith was there, with fireman Walter Hurst affirming that he most definitely thought the man Gracie was referring to was Captain Smith. Hurst thought this man was cheering on the occupants of Collapsible B, yelling, quote, Good boys, good lads, with the voice of authority. Hurst was so deeply touched by this man's honor and valor that he reached out to him with an oar later, only to find this man to be already dead. About 20 or so swimmers reached Collapsible A, which was partially flooded due to the fact that its sides hadn't been raised properly. And so those who climbed into the boat sat in a foot of freezing water. Many of those in Collapsible A died overnight due to the slow onset of hypothermia. Drifting in the still, glass-like sea much farther out from Collapsibles A and B were the other 18 lifeboats, many with empty seats. The occupants of the lifeboats wondered what they should do for the hundreds of swimmers crying out for help, if anything at all. The general fear was that the lifeboats would be swamped and tipped over, so they stayed away as hundreds drowned. The closest lifeboat to the sinking ship was Lifeboat 4, which was only about 160 feet away. Two people had actually been able to drop down into Lifeboat 4 from the ship and one other was scooped up from the water before Titanic foundered. Afterwards, seven more men were pulled up into Lifeboat 4, though two of these men would pass away from hypothermia. Collapsible D rescued one man who had jumped into the water and swam over to it immediately after the boat had been lowered. The rest of the lifeboats decided against returning to the site to save anyone else. Of course, there were some firm objections as people wanted to help those stranded. Quartermaster Hikins was in command of Lifeboat 6, and he sternly told the women in his boat that there was no point in going back to help anyone, as there were, quote, only a lot of stiffs there. To me, that's just disgusting. I can understand the fear of being capsized, but referring to your fellow man as stiffs is something else entirely. It took about 20 minutes for the noise from the swimmers to start to die down as they either died or slipped into unconsciousness. Of course, there was still a haunting moan with echoing whimpers in the otherwise dead silence of the sea. Fifth Officer Lowe was in charge of lifeboat 14 and he, quote, waited until the yells and shrieks had subsided for the people to thin out before returning to rescue what little remained alive. To me, again, this is just foul. I'd risk losing my own life before sitting there and doing absolutely nothing. Lowe would round up five lifeboats, transferring the occupants between them to free up space in lifeboat 14, then taking a crew of seven crewmen and a male passenger who graciously volunteered back to where Titanic had once been not 30 minutes earlier. Almost everyone was dead, but a few faint voices could be heard asking for help. Lady Lucy Duff Gordon, a leading British fashion designer, recalled her time in the lifeboats after the sinking, stating that, quote, The very last cry was that of a man who had been calling loudly, My God! My God! He cried monotonously in a dull, hopeless way. For an entire hour, there had been an awful chorus of shrieks, gradually dying into a hopeless moan, until this last cry that I speak of, then all was silent. 
Granted, it probably wasn't a full hour, but it must have felt like it. And for some of the survivors, the guilt of the awful silence was even worse than the horrible shrieking they just endured. I can only imagine the horrifying absence of sound, and just knowing that everyone who was certainly alive only a few moments before was either dead or dying. The guilt would just be too much. Lowe and his crew found four men who were still alive. One of them died shortly after rescue. Let's hope you were either already in a lifeboat or in this group. Otherwise, you'd probably be among what Lowe and his men described as, quote, hundreds of bodies and life belts, with the dead seeming, quote, as if they had perished with the cold as their limbs were all cramped up. Not only were there dead people, but later the body of a woman holding on to her dog were found. Every animal on board Titanic perished alongside the many people who also tragically died. After this, all of the survivors were awaiting the Carpathia in the darkness and the cold. There was no food or potable water in the boats, and many of the boats didn't even have lights of any sort, so they sat in silence and darkness. The situation was the worst for Collapsible B, which was upside down and only floating because of an ever-diminishing air pocket underneath it. As dawn began to creep toward the survivors, the wind and sea picked up, making the sea choppy. Those on Collapsible B were forced to stand on it to keep it from completely capsizing, and some, who were just completely exhausted, couldn't stand it any longer and tumbled into the sea, only to drown. It became increasingly difficult for everyone else to maintain their balance as waves splashed over the Collapsible lifeboat. Later on, Colonel Gracie would write of the perilous position he and the other survivors were in, recalling it to be, quote, the utter helplessness of our position. This position is depicted in the film A Night to Remember, and it's done very well. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. As for the rescue, we're only going to cover this briefly. If you want to hear more details about RMS Carpathia and how she rescued the passengers of Titanic, check out our video from last July on RMS Carpathia. I'll link it in the cards. RMS Carpathia, a Cunard Lines ocean liner captained by legendary captain, outstanding gentleman, and later Commodore of Cunard Lines, Captain Arthur Rostron, raced to get to Titanic as quickly as she could and at considerable risk. She had to dodge icebergs and pack ice on her way to Titanic's location, but she did so anyway, with Captain Rostron directing all steam away from everything, including heating and the kitchens, in order to reach 17 knots, the fastest Carpathia would ever go to reach Titanic. You and the other passengers would see the lights of Carpathia at 3.30 a.m., and it was the most welcome sight. By 4 a.m., Carpathia was beginning to take on survivors. It would take several hours for everyone to board. The 30 or so men that were clinging to Collapsible B had managed to board two other lifeboats by this time, though sadly one man would die just before Carpathia arrived. However, those in Collapsible A were not so lucky. More than half of them had died overnight, and the remaining survivors were transferred from Collapsible A to another lifeboat, leaving behind three bodies in the Collapsible. Collapsible A and the three bodies would drift away and be recovered by RMS Oceanic a month later, with the decaying bodies still aboard. As dawn broke over the Atlantic Ocean, the passengers of Carpathia were shocked by what they saw, which was described by one as, quote, fields of ice on which, like points on the landscape, rested innumerable pyramids of ice. As for Captain Rostron, he saw ice everywhere. This included 20 large bergs, measuring up to 200 feet high, as well as a vast amount of smaller bergs. Along the way, they also ran into ice flows and debris from Titanic floating around in the Atlantic. 
Relief washes over you as the lifeboats begin to be brought alongside RMS Carpathia, and survivors boarded Carpathia in numerous ways, including climbing up rope ladders for those strong enough, some being pulled up in slings, and the children being hoisted up in mail sacks. Everyone was exhausted and still in shock from their experience, and you're one of the people in the last lifeboat, which was Charles Leistoller's Lifeboat 12 with 74 people crammed in like sardines in a can, despite the fact it was only designed for 65. Everyone was on Carpathia by 9am, with small scenes of joy as families and friends were reunited, though most of the scene was tragic with families and friends grieving for those lost. You didn't know whether or not your family members or friends survived until you were on Carpathia. I can only imagine the pain of rushing through the crowd of people in a panicked but hopeful craze only to find the soul-crushing reality that you might be the last survivor of your family. Some families were wiped out entirely. Fifteen minutes after everyone was on board RMS Carpathia, two more ships showed up to assist, Mount Temple and the notorious SS Californian. Since it was now dawn and they finally learned what had happened overnight when her radio operator returned to his desk. By this point, however, there were no more survivors to pick up. Carpathia had completed the rescue mission already. Carpathia was supposed to head to Fiume, Austria-Hungary, which is current-day Rijeka, Croatia, and I do apologize if I butcher these names. However, she didn't have the medical facilities nor the foodstuffs to care for the survivors who were cold, hungry, injured, and traumatized. With this information in mind, Rostron made the decision to turn Carpathia toward New York City so their survivors could receive proper care. Carpathia left the site of the disaster, leaving Mount Temple and Californian behind to carry out one last futile two-hour search which turned up nothing but death and devastation. If you wanted to hear more about the harrowing rescue mission Carpathia carried out, make sure you check out her video where we cover it in more detail. On a rainy Thursday evening on April 18, 1912, RMS Carpathia steamed up to Pier 54 in New York City, which is Chelsea Piers today in Chelsea on the west side of Manhattan. It was an incredibly difficult voyage that saw Carpathia steaming through thick fog, thunderstorms, heavy seas, and pack ice everywhere. At the pier, Carpathia was greeted by some 40,000 onlookers standing on the wharves. Even back in 1912 before the age of the internet, the news traveled fast via messages to the shore from Carpathia and other ships. However, no one truly knew how devastating it was until Carpathia docked three days after Titanic foundered. At this point, Carpathia was loosely nicknamed the Ship of Sorrow, a stark contrast to the moniker Ship of Dreams that was given to Titanic. Even before this rainy Thursday, the mission to retrieve the dead was well underway. Four ships chartered by the White Star Line, C.S. Mackie Bennett and three Canadian vessels, C.S. Minia, C.G.S. Montmagny, and S.S. Algerine, recovered between 316 and 337 bodies, though the exact number is unknown. Either 118 or 119 were buried at sea, sources differ on the exact number, and about 209 were brought back to Halifax, Nova Scotia. 150 of them were buried in Halifax, 121 were buried at the Fairview Lawn Cemetery, 19 at the Mount Olivet Catholic Cemetery, and 10 at the Baron de Hirsch Jewish Cemetery. 59 bodies were claimed and taken elsewhere to be buried, while 42 remain unidentified to this day in Halifax. Their tombstones have a number and the date of the sinking. There were memorials erected around the globe commemorating the victims of the disaster, including, but not limited to, New York City, Washington, D.C., Southampton, Liverpool, Belfast, and Lakefield. Ceremonies honoring the dead and to raise money for the survivors were held on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. 
only 23% of Titanic's victims were recovered, with the majority having never been found or recovered. Evidence of their deaths and possibly where their bodies might have been were discovered 73 years later in 1985 on the seabed, like pairs of shoes side by side that could possibly indicate where a body had laid before decomposing and being consumed by sea life. As for the ships chartered by the White Star Line, I'll give you a brief timeline of how their searches went. C.S. Mackie Bennett, a cable repair ship famous for being the very first ship to be chartered to search for the dead and also the one that recovered the largest amount of dead bodies, left Halifax on April 17, 1912 at 12.35 p.m. to head to the wreck site. She traveled a total of 800 nautical miles to get where Titanic sank, and it took roughly four days at sea to get there. She began the gruesome recovery process on April 20, 1912 at 6 a.m. The ship's stock of embalming supplies could cope with 70 bodies, and they also had 100 coffins aboard as well as 100 tons of ice to store the recovered bodies and 12 tons of great iron to bury some of the dead at sea. There were 306 bodies in total recovered by the Mackie Bennett, with 51 being recovered on the first day. This breaks down to 46 men, 4 men, and 1 baby boy which would be identified in 2007 as the body of Sidney Leslie Goodwin, the youngest child in a family of eight who all perished. This just makes my heart ache. I can't imagine that being my baby boy. 24 of these first 54 were buried at sea due to the disfiguration that made them difficult to identify. In total, 116 bodies were buried at sea by the Mackie Bennett due to disfiguration or a lack of embalming fluid, and 56 bodies were buried at sea that the crew were able to identify. On April 30, 1912, C.S. Mackie Bennett returned to Halifax, Nova Scotia with 190 bodies on board, and the town rang church bells and fire bells to honor the dead. C.S. Minia was brought in when it became abundantly clear that the recovery operation was far more than one ship could handle. She left Halifax, Nova Scotia on Monday, April 22, 1912, and arrived at the site of the sinking on Friday, April 26, 1912. Minia would spend one week searching for the area for the deceased, equipped with 150 coffins, 20 tons of ice for storage, 10 tons of great iron for sea burials, and an unknown amount of embalming fluid, if any. In total, Minia recovered 17 bodies, two of which were unidentified firemen and were buried at sea. 15 would be taken back to Halifax, 10 being crew and 5 being passengers. C.S. Minia arrived safely back in Halifax on May 6, 1912. We move on to the third ship, C.G.S. Montmagny, and she received all of the empty, unused coffins and spare embalming fluid from C.S. Minia. She left the same day Minia arrived on May 6, 1912. In total, she managed to recover four bodies, one of which was buried at sea for unknown reasons, and three of which were delivered to Lewisburg, Nova Scotia, and they were sent to Halifax on the railway system. On May 13, 1912, CGS Montmagny continued her fruitless search, but found nothing more, and so she returned to Halifax on May 23, 1912. The last of the four ships chartered by the White Star Line for the recovery effort was SS Algerine, a steamship. She sailed from St. John's, Newfoundland on Thursday, May 16, 1912, to meet up with CGS Montmagny, and she did so on May 19, 1912. She spent three weeks out at sea searching the site of the sinking for the dead. She recovered one body, that of James McGrady. He had served as a saloon steward aboard Titanic. On June 6, 1912, SS Algerine arrived in St. John's, and there Mr. McGrady's body was transferred to the steamer Florizel to be taken to Halifax. 
Florizel arrived in Halifax on June 12, 1912, almost two full months after the sinking. There were other bodies recovered, including the three from Collapsible A recovered by RMS Oceanic, and all three were buried at sea. One was recovered by the SS Ottawa, and it was the body of William Thomas Curley, a second-class saloon steward, and he was found on June 6, 1912 and buried at sea. One body was recovered on June 8, 1912 by SS Ilford, and it was the body of William Frederick Cheverton. He was a member of Titanic's victualling crew, and he was buried at sea. Four more bodies were recovered by RMS Carpathia when she rescued the survivors, one from the water and three from the lifeboats, and all four were buried at sea. For anyone curious as to what a sea burial looks like, I'll give you a brief description. Ceremonies for burial at sea varies wildly due to religion, so I'll give you the general idea of it. Typically, either the captain of the ship or aircraft, or a religious representative from either the deceased's religion or the state religion, will perform the ceremony. It can include burial in a casket, burial sewn in sailcloth, burial in an urn, or the scattering of cremated ashes from the ship. Burial at sea via aircraft is performed with cremated ashes. There are other forms, like the mixing of one's ashes with concrete and then dropping the concrete block down into the ocean to form an artificial reef. One example of this is the Atlantis Reef, also known as the Neptune Memorial Reef, and it is entirely made of cremated remains and cement, and it is the largest man-made reef at a depth of about 40 feet. The biggest reaction to the disaster was primarily outrage and utter shock, directed at several sources and issues, and this included many overlying questions. Why did Ismay save himself when so many others died? Why weren't there more lifeboats? Why did Titanic run into an ice field at maximum speed? Why were many of the lifeboats launched half empty or more? These, among many other questions, were asked by the public, and they had no answers yet. The largest outcry, of course, was from the survivors themselves. Even while on Carpathia and traveling to New York City, some passengers, including Beasley, were determined to, quote, awaken public opinion to safeguard ocean travel in the future. And they actually wrote a public letter to the Times, which is a British daily national newspaper based out of London that began in 1785. In this letter, they were pleading and urging for major changes to maritime safety laws, which at the time were honestly pretty lax, especially compared to today's standards, which still aren't perfect. In places closely knit with Titanic, especially Southampton, the grief was unbearable. For the city of Southampton, the losses were numerous. It was the home port for 699 crew members and home to many of the passengers as well. The streets were filled with enormous crowds of crying women the mothers, sisters, daughters, and wives of crew members, and the crowd huddled around the White Star offices, filling the streets with a haunting moan and whimpers of sorrow. They waited for news on their loved ones, hoping for the best, yet preparing for the worst. Most of them were related to the 549 Southampton natives who died in the disaster. Meanwhile, in Belfast, where Titanic was built, shipyard workers openly cried in the streets, and the churches were packed beyond their limits. Sadly, those who worked in the shipyard saw Titanic as a symbol of Belfast's industrial prowess. And so when she sank, not only did the city's shipyard workers grieve, but they felt a misplaced sense of guilt. The ones who helped build the Ship of Dreams thought they were at least partly responsible in one way or another, and as we know, this just isn't the case. They didn't hit the iceberg after all. Titanic's crew did. After the sinking of Titanic, there were two public inquiries one in Britain and one in the United States. We are going to cover both inquiries. Please note before we move forward that I am not a lawyer and none of the things I'm about to tell you count as legal advice. 
Any lawyers listening, feel free to add to the conversation. Since the American inquiry started first, we'll begin there and then circle back to the British inquiry. The news reached a Republican senator for the state of Michigan named William Alden Smith. And when he heard about the tragic sinking, he saw the opportunity in front of him that many might not have. He could establish an American inquiry into the disaster to not only investigate Titanic sinking, but marine safety issues overall. Let's get a little backstory on Mr. Smith, because it's quite interesting. This wasn't his first rodeo, so to speak. In the past, he'd conducted an investigation into railroad safety issues. From this, he sponsored a lot of the operating and safety regulations passed by Congress that would preside over the American rail industry. However, an inquiry needed to be sprung quickly before the surviving passengers and crew returned to their homes elsewhere. First, he attempted contacting then-President William Howard Taft. However, he was informed by the President's secretary that they did not intend to take action. Well, for Mr. Smith, this simply would not do. Without the help of President Taft, Smith moved forward on April 17, 1912, addressing the Senate. In his address, he described a solution that would ultimately grant the Committee on Commerce powers to establish a hearing to investigate Titanic's demise. Astoundingly, Smith's resolution passed, Taft not required. A fellow Republican senator from Minnesota and chair of the Commerce Committee, Newt Nelson, would go on to appoint William Smith as chair of a subcommittee to carry out the hearings. President Taft received the news that his friend and military advisor, Augerpaul Butt, who had been an American Army officer and aide to both President Taft and President Theodore Roosevelt, had not survived. So the following day, after everything was set up with the Senate, William Smith met with President Taft to arrange additional measures related to the inquiry, and one of these was a naval escort for RMS Carpathia to ensure no one left the ship before it docked. Everyone was a witness at this point. That afternoon, after speaking with President Taft, Smith traveled by train to New York City alongside other officials and fellow Democrat senator from Nevada, Mr. Francis G. Newlands, to meet Carpathia at the dock on the evening of April 18, 1912. At this point, it was public knowledge that J. Bruce Ismay had survived, and it was the intention of the party on their way to New York to serve subpoenas on Ismay and the surviving crew and officers. This subpoena would require all of them to remain in America during the duration of the inquiry to testify before the subcommittee the next morning. For anyone unfamiliar with this legal term, we'll briefly cover what a subpoena is. A subpoena or witness summons is a writ issued by a government agency, most often a court of some sort, to compel testimony by a witness or production of evidence under a penalty of failure. There are two common types of subpoena, and pardon my Latin as we cover this. The first is subpoena ad test of condom, and this orders a person to testify before the ordering authority or face punishment. This subpoena can also request the testimony to be given by phone or in person. The second type is called subpoena duces tecum, and it orders a person or organization to bring physical evidence before the ordering authority or face punishment. This is often used for requests to mail copies of documents to requesting parties or directly to court. Obviously, we'd be going for the first type, requiring witness testimony. Smith and company boarded Carpathia that rainy Thursday evening on April 18, 1912, informing Ismay that he would be required to testify before the subcommittee the next morning on April 19th. The hearings began that Friday morning at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York, which still stands today and is a luxury hotel and condominium residence. 
These hearings would later be moved to Washington, D.C., and there they'd be held in the Russell Senate Office Building, which also exists and is the oldest of the United States Senate Office Buildings. Now we get into our key players of the committee. There were seven senators who would serve on the subcommittee, four Republicans, the Smith serving as chair, Jonathan Bourne from Oregon, Theodore E. Burton from Ohio, and George Clement Perkins from California, and three Democrats, Duncan U. Fletcher from Florida, Francis G. Newlands from Nevada, who we talked about earlier, and Fernifold McLendall Simmons from North Carolina. The composition of the subcommittee was strategically picked in order to make sure there was full representation of the liberal, moderate, and conservative wings of the two parties. Now that we are acquainted with our subcommittee, we can move on to questioning. Questioning of the witnesses would be carried out by various members of the committee at separate times, opposed to having all seven senators present the entire time. However, most of the work was on Smith's shoulders, and he personally would conduct the questioning of all of the key witnesses. This did cause a bit of turbulence between him and the other members of the committee, and it made him more enemies than friends, since it was interpreted as him taking the spotlight. If it was, we'll never know. This would result in some members of the committee attending the hearings infrequently as there was not much for them to do since Smith was practically running the entire thing. We can fault him for this, but I still tip my hat to him for even getting the show on the road to begin with. The official investigation spanned 18 days, punctuated by recesses in between, and testimony was recorded from over 80 different witnesses. The witnesses including surviving passengers and crew as well as captains and crew members of other ships in the area of the sinking, expert witnesses, various officials, and others who received or transmitted the news of the sinking of Titanic. There was a wide range of evidence submitted, from the deposition of correspondence and affidavits to questioning and spoken testimony in the hearings. There was a large number of subjects they covered, many of which we are glad they did. A few of them were Titanic's distress calls, the legal yet severely inadequate number of lifeboats, the ice warnings received and how many, the handling of the evacuation, and even the handling of the ship itself and her speed, which of course was far too fast. The first to be questioned was of course J. Bruce Ismay, however he wasn't the only one who would testify or provide evidence. Others from Titanic included the most senior surviving officer, second officer Charles Lightoller, the lookout who sounded the alarm and spotted the iceberg, Frederick Fleet, first-class passenger Archibald Gracie IV, and Harold Bride, a surviving wireless operator. Of those questioned from other ships, some were the captain of RMS Carpathia, Arthur Rostron, the wireless operator aboard Carpathia, Harold Cottam, captain of RMS Olympic, Herbert Haddock, and captain of the ever-controversial SS Californian, Stanley Lord. There were also expert witnesses called in, including those speaking on subjects like iceberg formation, radio communications, and newspaper reporting. This even included the chairman of the Marconi Company, Guillermo Marconi, general manager of the Associated Press, Melville Elijah Stone, and director of the United States Geological Survey, George Otis Smith. Of course, there were many, many others called to the stand, and one of these people was the vice president of the International Mercantile Marine Company, Philip A. S. Franklin. For those who don't know, the International Mercantile Marine Company, or IMM, was a shipping consortium headed by J.P. Morgan, who would also start Chase Bank and controlled the White Star Line. The inquiry would be concluded with William Smith boarding Titanic's sister ship, RMS Olympic, when she was in New York on May 25, 1912. 
There, he would inspect the ship's system of watertight doors and bulkheads, which, of course, were identical to Titanic's. He'd also interview some members of Olympic's crew while she was in port, and this would help aid the committee's final decision. Now we are going to get into the final report of the American Inquiry, which was presented to the United States Senate on May 28, 1912. The report was 19 pages long with 44 pages of exhibits and summarizing roughly 1,145 pages of affidavits and testimonies. For anyone unclear of what an exhibit is in the legal sense, I'll give you a brief explanation. An exhibit is a document, photograph, object, animation, or other device formally introduced as evidence in a legal proceeding. An affidavit is a sworn statement a person makes before a notary or officer of the court outside of the court asserting that certain facts are true to the best of that person's knowledge. Now that you know those two legal definitions, we're going to move into the recommendations found by the inquiry. And these recommendations, along with those from the British inquiry that we are going to cover next, led to many changes in safety practices after Titanic's sinking. The key findings in this report were as follows. Number one a lack of emergency preparations left Titanic's crew and passengers in, quote, a state of absolute unpreparedness, and thus the evacuation was chaotic at best. Quote, no general alarm was given, no ship's officers formally assembled, no orderly routine was attempted or organized system of safety begun. Two, the ship's life-saving equipment and safety equipment was not properly tested before her maiden voyage. Three, Titanic's captain, the late Edward J. Smith, had shown an, quote, indifference to danger that was one of the direct and contributing causes of this unnecessary tragedy. Essentially, an action caused the deaths of over a thousand. Four, the severe lack of needed lifeboats was the fault of none other than the British Board of Trade, quote, to whose laxity of regulation and hasty inspection the world is largely indebted for this awful tragedy. Five, Here's where it gets controversial. SS California had been, quote, much nearer than the captain is willing to admit. And so the inquiry recommended that the British government should take, quote, drastic action against Stanley Lord for his inaction. Six, though J. Bruce Ismay had not given a direct order to Captain Smith to run Titanic at faster speeds, his very presence on the ship may have contributed to the captain's decision to push Titanic's limits. Seven, Finally, third-class passengers had not been prevented from reaching the lifeboats, however, they were not aware in many cases until it was far too late that the ship was sinking. Of course, this fact is debated as there is evidence that the crew actively stopped the third class from reaching the boat deck in many cases, but this is merely what the U.S. Inquiry of 1912 found with their limited investigative capabilities. This report was highly critical of established seafaring practices and the roles that Titanic's officers and crew, builders and owners, had played leading up to the disaster. The arrogance and complacency that was prevalent not only on board Titanic, but in the shipping industry as a whole and the British Board of Trade, was highlighted by the inquiry's report. However, White Star Line and the IMM were not found negligent under existing maritime laws, since they had followed the standard practice of that time and the disaster was therefore categorized as an act of God. Honestly, I can agree with the category they placed this disaster in. Senator Smith himself had his own list of recommendations for new regulations that should be imposed on passenger vessels wishing to dock in America, and they are the following statements, and they're pretty dubious if you think about it. Number one, ships need to slow down when entering areas known to have drifting ice and should post extra lookouts. Two, 
all navigational messages should be brought promptly to the bridge and handled accordingly. Three, there should be enough lifeboats for every person on board. Four, all ships using wireless sets should maintain 24-hour communications. Five, new regulations in order to govern the use of radio telegraphy. Six, adequate lifeboat drills to be carried out for the passengers. Seven, rockets should be fired by ships at sea only to signal distress. There were two speeches that went along with the presentation of this report. One from Smith and one from the Democrat Senator from Maryland, Senator Isidore Rayner. Near the end of his speech, Smith stated, quote, The calamity through which we have just passed has left traces of sorrow everywhere. Hearts have been broken and deep anguish unexpressed. Art will typify with master hand its lavish contribution to the sea. Soldiers of state and masters of trade will receive the homage which is their honest due. Hills will be cleft in search of marble white enough to symbolize the heroic deeds and where kinship is the only tie that binds the lowly to the humble home bereft of son or mother or father. Little groups of kinsfolk will recount around the kitchen fire the traits of human sympathy in those who went down with the ship. These are choice pictures in the treasure house of the affections, but even these will sometime fade. The sea is the place permanently to honor our dead. This should be the occasion for a new birth of vigilance, and future generations must accord to this event a crowning motive for better things. Rayner's closing words actually got applause from the assembled senators, and I just have to remind you that though he states here that Nearer My God to Thee was played during the sinking, this isn't confirmed. However, Mr. Rayner stated, Quote, the sounds of that awe-inspiring requiem that vibrated o'er the ocean have been drowned in the waters of the deep. The instruments that gave them birth are silenced as the harps were silenced on the willow tree. But if the melody that was rehearsed could only reverberate through this land nearer my God to thee, and its echoes could be heard in these halls of legislation, and at every place where our rulers and representatives pass judgment and enact and administer laws, and at every home and fireside, from the mansions of the rich to the huts and hovels of the poor, and if we could be made to feel that there is a divine law of obedience and of adjustment and of compensation that should demand our allegiance far above the laws that we formulate in this presence then from the gloom of these fearful hours we shall pass into the dawn of a higher service and of a better day and then mr president the lives that went down upon this faded night did not go down in vain smith also proposed three pieces of legislation to be passed the first was a joint resolution with the House of Representatives to present a Congressional Gold Medal to Captain Arthur Rostron of RMS Carpathia. And you can hear more about that in our Carpathia episode. The second was a bill reevaluating the existing maritime legislation. And lastly, there was another joint resolution proposed to establish a commission overseeing the construction and equipment of maritime vessels. As for the regulation of wireless telegraphy, the report's recommendations were implanted in the form of the Radio Action of 1912, which stated that all radio stations in the U.S. be licensed by the federal government and that all seafaring vessels are required to continuously monitor distress frequencies. The existing Wireless Ship Act of 1910 would also be amended to add new regulations that governed how wireless telegraphy aboard ships would be managed moving forward. In my mind, all of these are good changes. However, we have to note that the American inquiry was gawked at in Britain, both for Smith's style of questioning and its conduct. It was seen as a direct attack on the British shipping industry as a whole, despite the fact that Titanic was indirectly owned by the IMM, an American consortium. 
Smith was called out for being naive, and many in the UK were appalled at the gall that America had for subpoenaing British subjects. Not all opposed the American inquiry, with some British writers applauding the inquiry. G.K. Chesterton compared the American objective of maximum openness regarding the sinking to what he deemed Britain's quote national evil. He described this evil as being to quote hush everything up. It is to damp everything down. It is to leave the great affair unfinished. To leave every enormous question unanswered. He would go on to argue that quote it does not much matter whether Senator Smith knows the facts. What matters is whether he is really trying to find them out. Even a survivor of the disaster, founder of the Review of Reviews, William Stead, declared, quote, "We prefer the ignorance of Senator Smith to the knowledge of Mr. Ismay. Experts have told us the Titanic was unsinkable. We prefer ignorance to such knowledge." I don't blame the Review of Reviews one bit for stating such a thing. Americans, of course, were generally positive to the inquiry and felt it was satisfactory. However, we are going to get into the British inquiry next, so just keep the Americans' findings in the back of your mind. Rewind to the sinking, and when the news started hitting the mainland, when it hit the UK, the responsibility for initiating an inquiry fell into the laps of the Board of Trade, the organization that was responsible for all British maritime regulations and whose own inspectors had certified Titanic as seaworthy before leaving for America. Just warning you now, I'm American, so I might not get all of the legal jargon and legal aspects of the British government spot on, but I'm going to do my best. On April 22, 1912, three days after the American inquiry had already began, the president of the Board of Trade, Sidney Buxton, asked the Lord Chancellor, Lord Loreburn, to set up a commission of inquiry to investigate the sinking. Lord Mersey was appointed as the inquiry's president by the Lord Chancellor. The resulting hearings would take place from May 2nd to July 3rd of 1912, mainly at the London Scottish Drill Hall on Buckingham Gate, and this location was chosen mostly for its large size since they expected a large audience of curious onlookers. However, this building had terrible acoustics and made hearing what was happening almost impossible. During the last two days, the Scottish Drill Hall was being booked for an examination, and so the inquiry was moved to Caxton Hall in Westminster on the corner of Caxton Street and Palmer Street. In order to help the inquiry, Harland and Wolfe provided a 20-foot-long half-model displaying Titanic's starboard side, and next to it was a large map showing the locations of sea ice and the North Atlantic shipping lanes. I know it was used for an inquiry, but I'd geek out if I got a 20-foot-long model of any ship from the ship's builders. Sign me up for one of RMS Queen Mary. Sir Rufus Isaacs, the Attorney General for England and Wales. Gave the commission a list of 26 questions that covered a variety of issues, including but not limited to how Titanic had been navigated, how she was built, and the ice warnings that were received before she met her fate. Another question was added to the inquiry after it began regarding SS Californian, which was already being scrutinized. This is the basic layout of the inquiry, and now we'll go over some of the key players on the legal team. For our legal personnel, those who carried out the questioning were assessors and experts in marine law and shipping architecture, and of course, legal counsels. There were five assessors total, and they were Edward Chaston, an Admiralty senior engineer assessor, Commander Fitzroy Lyon of the Royal Navy Reserve, Rear Admiral the Honorable Somerset Gough Calthorpe, 
Professor John Harvard Biles, an expert and professor on naval architecture at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, and last but not least, Captain A.W. Clark of the Corporation of Trinity House of Deptford Strand, also known as Trinity House, and this is the official authority for lighthouses in England, Wales, the Channel Islands, and Gibraltar. There were others involved, of course, and these key players were the Attorney General who we mentioned earlier, Sir Rufus Isaacs, and he'd be representing the British Board of Trade. Robert Finley, who was representing the White Star Line, Thomas Scanlon, who was an Irish barrister and a member of Parliament from 1909 to 1918, and Clement Edwards, a Welsh lawyer, journalist, trade union activist, and Liberal Party politician. Of course, every person and organization needs a lawyer, too. Hill Dixon, a maritime law firm headquartered in Liverpool, which still operates to this day, represented the White Star Line. There were other legal counsel as well, many of whom were also members of Parliament, and this included Sir Thomas Haymar Greenwood, a Canadian-born British lawyer and politician, and Sir Henry Edward Duke, a British judge and conservative politician. John Simon, the Solicitor General who was also representing the Board of Trade alongside Sir Rufus Isaacs, Sidney Rowlett, an Anglo-Egyptian barrister and judge, Edward Maurice Hill, and the Prime Minister H. H. Asquith's son, Raymond Asquith who was an English barrister and distinguished Oxford scholar. For the organizations that had counsel representing or watching on their behalf, we have the British Board of Trade, the White Star Line, the Chamber of Shipping of the United Kingdom, the British Seafarers Union, which dissolved in 1922, the Imperial Merchant Service Guild, the Marine Engineers Association, the National Union of Stewards, also known as the National Union of Ship Stewards, Cooks, Butchers, and Bakers, and was active between 1909 and 1921, the National Sailors and Firemen's Union of Great Britain and Ireland, which became the National Union of Seamen and amalgamated with the National Union of Railwaymen in 1990 to form the National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers, and the builders of Titanic, Harlan and Wolfe. As for organizations who had representatives strictly watching the proceedings were the Leyland Line, the Canadian Pacific Railway, and the Allen Line Royal Mail Steamers. They probably watched either for gossip or to see how to avoid such a fiasco. So we have a lot of stuff going into this inquiry to keep track of. A lot of British officials, a lot of companies, and a lot of unions and guilds. Now we get into the testimony and who testified for the British Rec Commissioner's inquiry. There were 36 days total of official investigations that were spread out over the course of two months. And in this time, there was testimony recorded from almost 100 witnesses. So already more than the American inquiry who only spoke to about 80 different witnesses. These witnesses would answer set questions that the process set out to answer. And these questions would sometimes be combined with extensive cross-examination. And this resulted in well over 25,000 questions being recorded in the official court records. That's a lot of questioning. For anyone unfamiliar, cross-examination in the legal sense is the formal interrogation of a witness called by the other party in a court of law to challenge or extend testimony already given. It's also described as aggressive or detailed questioning of someone. It's a lot of pressure to be asked questions by your own legal counsel, let alone to be grilled by the other side. This was not only monumental with the sheer amount of questions asked and answered, but the cost of the inquiry made it the most expensive, longest, and most detailed inquiry in British history at that point, costing almost £20,000. That doesn't sound like much, but if you look at inflation, in 2023, that would be about £1,828,647. 
I couldn't find any statistics for the cost of modern-day inquiries or anything related to disasters, but an example from January 2023 is a North Carolina plane crash that killed eight was settled for $15 million, so court cases can get really pricey quickly. The witnesses testifying in the British Wreck Commissioner's inquiry were passengers and crew members of Titanic, as well as captains and crew from other ships nearby. There were also testimonies given from expert witnesses, government officials, ship designers, and White Star Line officials, so pretty similar to the American inquiry. Among the surviving crew members who were witnesses for the British inquiry were Charles Lighthaller, the ship's baker, Charles Yoffin, Harold Bride, and Frederick Fleet. Again, Harold Cottam and Arthur Rostron from Carpathia gave testimonies, as well as Captain Stanley Lord from SS California. In this inquiry, the captain of RMS Baltic, J.B. Ranson, was also questioned. Expert witnesses once again included Guillermo Marconi, but also a star-studded man was included in this inquiry, Sir Ernest Shackleton, famous for his ship Endurance, which we covered last year. I really admire Shackleton, so if I were in the room for his expert testimony, I'd be a bit starstruck. Again, in this inquiry, the UK Vice President for IMM, Harold Arthur Sanderson, was called to the stand. For the White Star Line were two people questioned. J. Bruce Ismay, the chairman, of course, and Charles Alfred Bartlett, the marine superintendent. Evidence was given from Harlan and Wolfe by Alexander Carlyle, a naval architect and brother-in-law to Lord Peary, the chairman of Harlan and Wolfe from 1895 to 1924. Peary and Carlyle were initially responsible for the design of all three Olympic-class liners, RMS Olympic, RMS Titanic, and, at the time, RMS Britannic, whose construction had yet to begin. Carlyle retired from Harlan and Wolfe in 1910, and neither he nor Peary had traveled on the maiden voyage for Titanic. Instead, Lord Peary's nephew, who also worked at Harlan and Wolfe, had Mr. Thomas Andrews, and he had not survived. The only passengers to give testimony in this inquiry other than J. Bruce Ismay were Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon and his wife Lucy, Lady Duff Gordon. Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon was a first-class passenger, prominent Englishman and sportsman who owned land in Scotland. And his wife Lucy was a prominent fashion designer who worked under the name Lucille. She was famous for her lingerie, tea gowns, and evening wear that she designed all of it luxuriously layered and draped garments in soft fabrics of different pastel colors, but she also offered simple, smart tailored suits and daywear. Unfortunately, both of these two would be tied to enormous controversy in the sinking of Titanic, and we'll get to that here shortly. For those who viewed the inquiry and those who heard the gossip of it, the highlights of the inquiry as a whole was the testimony and questioning of SS California's crew and the Duff Gordon controversy. For SS Californian's crew, the utter inaction and failure to help a ship that was sinking merely 10 miles away, which had already been disclosed by the American inquiry, was hotly controversial all around the globe, and it became even bigger news with the testimony given by Stanley Lord and his officers. Here I'll tell you to you like a town gossip. Here's the scoop. Stanley Lord and his officers had contradictory statements. Stanley Lord's explanations and claims were flatly different than those of his officers, and this just made him seem manipulative. It was seen as him being intimidating and almost tyrannical toward his crew. It is important to note that Lord and crew were never accused of wrongdoing, so they were merely questioned as witnesses. One historian put it best, stating, quote, The image created in the mind of the public ever since has been of the Californians' officers standing idly on the bridge, so thoroughly intimidated by their captain that they would rather watch another ship sink than run the risk of facing his wrath. I can't help but feel for the crew and officers, however. 
Their statements and that of the captain should line up if this is merely just public perception, but take my opinion with a grain of salt since it's just that, opinion. As for the testimony from the Duff Gordons, they were accused of wrongdoing. They were accused of misconduct for their actions since they left Titanic in a lifeboat with enough seats for 40 people, but the boat had only around 12 passengers in it when it departed Titanic. This controversy drew enormous crowds of curious onlookers, and it even featured some of Britain's elite, like the wife of Prime Minister H.H. H. Asquith, Mrs. Margot Asquith, Count Alexander Beckendorf, the Russian ambassador to London, various aristocrats, and several members of Parliament who were not in charge of the inquiry itself. I personally don't believe it is their fault for the lifeboat leaving so drastically under capacity. It is the crew's job to launch lifeboats, not the Duff Gordons. One of the biggest differences between the American and British inquiries is that for the British inquiry, they actually looked into the fire that started 10 days before Titanic left port and received testimony about that. This fire burned for several days into the maiden voyage, and it is rumored to have finally been put out the night of the sinking on April 14, 1912. Unfortunately, little was noted about the fire. A modern-day historian in 2016 theorized that the fire might have damaged the structural integrity of the two bulkheads and the hull, and this combined with the other factors of the sinking may have contributed to the breaching of so many compartments, but we'll never know for sure. We're going to get into the final report and conclusion of the British inquiry. The final report was published on July 30, 1912, and all the testimony led to multiple things in this report, including a detailed description of Titanic, a full account of Titanic's maiden voyage leading up to the sinking, a description of the damage done by the iceberg that was discovered by the late Thomas Andrews, and probably one of the most important things was the account of the evacuation and rescue by Carpathia. Of course, there was a special attention reserved for SS Californian in this inquiry as well. According to the conclusion of the inquiry, the sole reason Titanic foundered was because of the collision with the iceberg at such high speed. No other circumstances. Not flaws with the design of the ship, not the fire, not the fatal error made by Mr. Murdoch in turning the ship and reversing her engines, none of that. Quote, the court, having carefully inquired into the circumstances of the above-mentioned shipping casualty, finds, for the reasons appearing in the annex hereto, that the loss of said ship was due to collision with an iceberg, brought about by the excessive speed at which the ship was being navigated. That was their official wording of it, and for the most part, I agree, but there were so many factors that went into the sinking and the massive loss of life that I think it's a gross understatement to just leave it at the collision and speed. They did note that the lookout being kept was inadequate given the navigational hazards that were presented to Titanic, being there were only two lookouts that night, the ship was going fast, and they neglected to bring along their binoculars, even if it's been proven that that might not have helped. The ship's officers were noted as complacent in the report, though I would hate to say such a thing. I personally believe they were going off of what Captain Smith was relaying to them. The inquiry also doubled down on Californian, stating that she, quote, could have pushed through the ice to the open water without any serious risk, and so have come to the assistance of Titanic. Had she done so, she might have saved many, if not all, of the lives that were lost. I agree, though some researchers do not, so that is a factor to consider. Sir Rufus Isaacs, the Board of Trade's representative, recommended to Lord Mersey that a formal inquiry should move forward investigating Captain Lord's, quote, competency to continue as master of a British ship. However, there was no further action because of legal technicalities that are unspecified. 
Rightfully so, the British Board of Trade was looked down upon for its incredibly lax regulations, especially the rules regarding lifeboats. There should have been enough seats for everyone aboard, and the crews should have been trained properly on how to use them safely and effectively. Luckily, the Duff Gordons were cleared of any wrongdoing, as they should have been. However, they did get scolded for not being tacked. Here's where we get to some serious differences between the American and British inquiries. The Mersey Report, as it's called, did not hold the failures of the Board of Trade, Titanic's Captain Edward Smith, or the White Star Line against them. They did find Smith at fault for not changing course or slowing down, but he hadn't been negligent because he followed the practices that were common at the time and had been deemed safe up until that point. The inquiry noted that British ships before Titanic had carried over 3.5 million passengers east and west on the Atlantic with a loss of only 10 lives. But with how many ships I cover from this point in time, I just don't understand how that is possible. Not saying their numbers or facts are wrong, it just seems odd to me. They would go on to conclude that Captain Edward J. Smith had done, quote, only that which other skilled men would have done in that same position. They did note the practice itself to be faulty and, quote, it is to be hoped that the last has been heard of this practice. What a mistake in the case of Titanic would without doubt be the negligence in any similar case in the future. As for the recommendations, it would similarly echo the Americans, pleading for changes in safety regulations and practices on British ships. The report was received well by the British press, though there were others that were critical, namely Charles Lighthaller. In his memoirs, he pointed out that the inquiry had a severe conflict of interest, stating, quote, A washing of dirty linen would help no one. The Board of Trade had passed that ship as, in all respects, fit for the sea. Now the Board of Trade was holding an inquiry into the loss of that ship, hence the whitewash brush. I think Mr. Lightoller is more than qualified to criticize the Board of Trade, and I wholeheartedly agree with him. The American inquiry was much more harsh, however, the British inquiry did dig into some details that the Americans did not. Neither inquiry was perfect, and both had their innate flaws, however, I think overall they did get the job done. Of course, after these inquiries, there were major changes to the shipping world, much needed changes. After the disaster, the British and American boards of inquiry stated that all ships should carry lifeboats for everyone on board the ship, mandated lifeboat drills needed to be carried out, lifeboat inspections needed to be conducted, and furthermore. A lot of these lifeboat recommendations would find their way into the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea, or SOLAS, passed in 1914, and we still refer to it to this day, though it has been updated numerous times, most recently on May 25, 1980. Not only were lifeboat regulations changed, but the fact that there needed to be a 24-hour, 7-day-a-week radio watch and in the United States, the Radio Act of 1912 was passed. This rule would also be published in SOLAS. It officially states that not only does there need to be radio communications operated 24 hours a day on ships, but that there should be a secondary power supply so they would not miss distress calls coming in. The Radio Act of 1912 also stated ships needed to remain in contact with other ships in their vicinity and any coastal radio stations. In addition to this, SOLAS would update a regulation stating that red rockets fired from a ship at sea must be interpreted as a cry for help, and not just fancy fireworks being launched on deck. This decision was because SS Californian could see the rockets launched from Titanic, but failed to act upon it for one reason or another. In my opinion, one of the most significant changes was the addition of the International Ice Patrol. 
the U.S. Navy assigned scout cruisers Chester and USS Birmingham to patrol the Grand Banks of Newfoundland for the remainder of 1912. And in 1913, the United States Navy couldn't spare any ships for the Revenue Cutter Service, which was the forerunner for the United States Coast Guard, and they assumed this responsibility, and they assigned two cutters to the job, Seneca and Miami. Solos first convened due to the Titanic disaster on November 12, 1913, and the following year on January 30, 1914, there was a treaty signed by the conference. This would result in the formation and international funding of the International Ice Patrol. It's an agency of the United States Coast Guard, and it's still operational to this day, continuously searching and reporting on the location of North Atlantic Ocean icebergs that could be dangerous to transatlantic sea traffic, passenger or cargo ships. They now mostly use aircraft for the job, but it is still just as important as it was in 1914. As for changes to ship design, there were many, many ships that went through refitting for safety changes, especially for ships with double bottoms. One of these ships was Titanic's eldest sister, RMS Olympic. Her double bottom was extended up the side of her hull to create that double hull for extra safety. Her bulkheads were also raised up to sea deck, and many of Britannic's features would be changed as well, but we'll cover that next week when we talk about her. This extension of Olympics and other ships' watertight compartment bulkheads made the compartments much more watertight and secure, but it wasn't perfect and it still isn't. Anything having to do with humans will not be perfect, but we can continue to improve and learn from the mistakes of the past. Titanic has lived on as a cultural phenomenon that people, including myself, just can't seem to get enough of. From the time of the sinking, she was seen as wildly sensational and ultra-tragic, which is weird since there were other comparable sinkings at the time with a similar story or death toll, but that didn't matter. Titanic's legend will live on endlessly. She is continuously decaying on the seabed, with roughly one ten-thousandth of an inch oxidizing per day on her metal surfaces. One day, she will collapse in on herself, and nothing more than a heap of rust will be left on the ocean floor. There is no stopping it, but it is still incredibly sad to think that the grave of so many will one day just cease to exist. Let's hope that continuously talking about the tragedy can help us remember the victims and honor them. That is what I hope to do with our three-part series on her, as I have always loved the Ship of Dreams and will continue to do so. Thank you for tuning in to the fourth episode of Titanic Month on Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you liked this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a five-star review, as it does help us reach more listeners like you. If you have any ships you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment and you might hear your favorite ship here on the podcast. Check out our community tab for updates and to interact with us. And don't forget to check out our second channel, Speed Force Media. Tune in next Sunday for the final episode of Titanic Month, where we cover the final Olympic-class sister, HMHS Britannic. Also, tune in next Monday for the final bonus episode of Titanic Month. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.